The Koivig pod. Well, I'm smiling from a Manchester United viewpoint. Champions League nearly in the bag. But Man City will be really disappointed. They didn't look like the team that had won 14 on the trot. Subscribe to the feed in the OTB Sports app now. OTB AM with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon Night Edition available now. Right, a very good morning to you. It is uh, Wednesday, the 16th. It's Tuesday. Tuesday. Isn't oh, it Tuesday? It is. Actually, you want <laughs> we did a test. I practiced this earlier just because they wanted us to test the microphones. I'm going to uh, show you how the sausage is made. And I got the date correct. And I got the day of the week correct. And then come the real thing, I fluff my lines. Anyway, Shane is here. Colin is here. What a great start to this morning show. Yeah, we tried. Good morning. How are things? Yeah, very good. Um... I arrived in uh, about quarter past eight last night to sit down to watch the football and I was like, this is going to be crap. And then checked my Twitter and it was aflame with the VAR audio. I was like, oh. So I rewound and watched that and then caught up with the goals and missed nothing in the football. Mm. But the VAR stuff, it's like, they're doing every. It's, it's almost like it's the GAA. They're doing everything they can not to rip anything off from another sport for fear of being seen to rip something off from another sport. But basically they've invented ref mic from rugby. They've invented ref mic from rugby and they're like, wow, this is, uh, I mean, this is unbelievable. And it actually was unbelievable. It was brilliant to see. I don't know if you've seen this or not, but mm-hmm. uh, they had Howard Webb on, who was very impressive. Yeah, really good. Like a really, really impressive character who was more than happy to um, listen to the stuff from either side of him and seemed to have a bit of authority over the two pundits who were like... A little bit uh, afraid of him. It, it's, it felt a little bit like they were in the presence of one of their former managers. Um... But the, they went through a series of contentious decisions uh, over the course of the season and it completely humanised the referees. It explained that there's two, essentially two people in VAR working at the same time on stuff, that the communication is excellent. There's, there's this kind of constant panting in the background, which is the tired referee, um, which would suggest that uh, they all need to do a little bit of uh, fitness work or actually it's a much harder job than we think. I'm, I'm in the same camp. I think, yeah. You know, yeah. Um, and uh, I don't know, I think it, it's basically, if they just had that feed, and there's no reason why they couldn't have the feed, because they had the feed in rugby, then all this would go away. Everything would just go away. Mm. Football has a, a huge problem with dissent and disrespect by players towards referees. Again, again, I'm... And this would, I think, help solve that huge, huge problem. Ten-game ban for saying the stuff that they actually say. It's awful. They get away with murder, these players, like, and you go through the ages, like, remember the old Manchester United teams, they were brutal for it, like, the famous game oh, against yeah. Middlesbrough 99 when Roy Keane and Yapstam and the lads chased down the ref, like, literally chased well, them around the yeah. pitch, uh, right up to the modern day. It's funny, because uh, this is actually have a piece with the BBC commentary at the weekend, that Morris Deegan, uh, they introduced him before the match and they went, they went to him across the course of the game, and, um, you know, there was uh, back and forth, Morris talking about Philly McMahon, and it was the same with Howard Webb last night talking about Gary Neville. Yeah, yeah, orchestrated campaigns by players to overturn decisions like, like in your day, Gary. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, fair point. Because mm. Neville was like, oh, well, you not just have to listen to the player when they're telling you something. They're like, well, you know, because then you'll just not always lie to me, Gary. The way you would have done. I think it'll, it'll create more, uh, more empathy f- 
four referees and linesmen. Like there was one occasion where there was an offside that was absolutely marginal, and uh, the VR said straight away, "Yeah, this is going to be a tight one." And um, yeah, after it was given as onside, and the goal was the Newcastle goal, and it was the, the linesman starts apologising. Joe Linton, sorry lads. Yeah, it's like you, you're really apologising for something that the human eye could probably barely just pick up. Yeah, well, he actually did the right thing. I think it's a, it, it's one of those reflex sorries as opposed to um, yeah, you know, never picked up on that. I'm like, I, I mean. You know, people have conversations. True. It, it may well just be a conversational tick. But really, like, uh, the, I still have significant doubts about when the ball is kicked. Like, is is the ball kicked the moment that the contact is made with the ball? Is it is the ball kicked finally when the uh, foot leaves the ball and is no longer in contact with each other? They don't actually focus on that. Mm. And we, we could see that what they're focused on is like the, the, the line of the, the last defender and the line of the uh, foremost attacking player but they don't do any focus on the precise second. And actually, TV isn't high def enough to be able to tell you when the ball leaves the foot. So all of this, I think, is kind of a little bit of bullshit. But anyway, it's, it's our current best bullshit. They've altered the body position since the COVID season when there was goals being ruled out. That mm. Parts of the body that had nothing to do with goals the scored. I think Sadio Mane got done really badly Against with his arm, I think. Yeah. And they changed that since. Oh. But it does seem when they were going through like the audio of a typical decision like they did last night on Monday Night Football. Yeah. It's like, it does all seem kind of overly complicated. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's, it, it kind of does take the joy out of everything. It's, it's, like, it's, like, listening, it's like listening to recordings of like in a NASA station. I know. Yeah, but a space mission. mission control. It's yeah. real like, uh, and I, like, I know this is, it's ultimately for the benefit of the game and more <laughs> correct decisions are being made, but I was like, geez, you forget why we're all here in the first place. Like, this is supposed to be enjoyable. The most but exciting. guys like so stressed out for, oh my God, uh, can you just draw that line? Just, just to the far guy there. Just give me a second. Just, just, sorry, just give me a sec, please. I'll, I'll, be, I'll be done in two seconds. Yeah. Like, this is supposed to be escapism. Ultimately, well, the you know, you're, you're Simon Jordan. Uh, it's, they're supposed to get it right. I mean, uh, sorry if it listens. If it sounds like it's NASA, that's a, literally the most impressive oh, stuff that really human beings have ever done is pulling, you know, humans. Other I humans think it's, they, they, the thought the thought they put into this is um, it, it's very commendable, and and also it's going to get faster and quicker. But I really do think they should be playing this all the time, and they should mm. definitely mic up the refs so that you can hear the player ref interaction. And I guarantee. Overnight, players would be like, oh, "I better watch them saying here." Just cut it. Commercial deals are gone. Cut to it live. Find out what I'm like. <laughs> not not after the game as well. Like, oh, at the end of the game, let's see this. Just do it live. It's a really obvious thing. It's the one thing I really, really love rugby for is the relationship between players and refs. And one, one other thing about rugby, they've started to talk over the ref mic way more now than they used to. Just shut up and let us hear what the referee is saying, and then he's part of your commentary team. Yeah, yeah, literally a little bit of a little bit of. Uh, but it's like you say, it takes the fun out of out of sport. But it, it um, doesn't. No, it doesn't. The Kai Havertz one, particularly, the referee is behind. Well, it adds this extra layer of tension where we find out whether or not something actually happened. No, but when every goal is scored now, there is a split. Yeah, there is a You were like, you oh, not like when you were at Old Trafford at the weekend. Yeah, you're waiting. Did you feel that? Uh, those two goals are fairly cl- fairly clear cut. I even think. Then but, you're still but even then, they're going to probably go back to this. Like, yeah. was there a fair decision? You no, didn't have to wait for anything. Did no VAR decisions. Yeah, no. I, like, I was at Spurs Wolves at the start of the season. There was none either. But I would like to hear what the the user experience is like in the stadium. Mm. Of you know. Oh yeah, okay. Through it in the game, except except the two games oh, no. we were at. But to your I end, I never said that once. I'm just saying it comes across so serious. It's supposed to be escapism. Your point, Jar, about the I know it's people's livelihoods. I understand that, <laughs> well, but it's the entertainment industry, baby. Yeah, it doesn't sound very entertaining. Do you, these it's people are looking at heart attacks. Like the year is 2023. That your point, Jar, about the moment that the ball is actually kicked. Why don't we have sensors on pl- every single player's foot? I, I know, obviously, the ball could be kneed forward, or whatever, but at least totally. that would stamp it. Well, 
<laughs> it, it, in 50 years time there's going to be something crazy like that centres and boots you're going to have so, yeah, so many rules they'll be like say, what? what what are we doing here again yeah yeah. but uh, like again going back to rugby right and see the thing is it's such a different game obviously because there's so many more decisions happening in football than rugby you can almost predict what's about to happen in rugby from referee's perspective Oftentimes in football like you could have a split second like something someone's being fouled or there's a decision to be made <coughs> but when a referee makes a call in rugby nine times out of ten player would be like fine I don't agree with it but whatever mm. and walks away yeah. the game would be so much better off I cannot stand it's my biggest pet peeve is the way footballers treat referees well and I think this would all help I, I, I don't think it's going to fix it I think that there's a cultural issue from parents on sidelines screaming at referees in underage sport and you know you can, you can see it and uh, that, that comes from like you know pent up vicarious living failed athletes anyway that's a tangent uh, should bring in the mics for goods as Tom Flynn mic up the manager as well it'll be interesting to hear maybe not no uh, no need to be micing officials up just another reason for people to be moaning lead the nonsense to the rugby says Brian um, and then Bobby Dwyer was was anybody else trying to work out their abbreviations PPV what was what was the or a, APP what was it was it attacking play Some, I, I don't, I, it was like the start of the play they seem to be um, needs to be ref mic just like in rugby would be a massive improvement for the breaks in play uh, John Dooley says anybody hear the Stormers coach and Kitchoff's interview yesterday trying to explain the video I didn't hear it actually I didn't, uh, didn't see that so John in the comments maybe you would uh, inform us about oh we were just happy we didn't have to get on a plane again because you know we're, we like the environment and it's good to you know not burn the planet is it something like that that sounds about right um very good point from Sh- uh, Shane in the comments last uh, this morning. The, the cherry picked the footage last night. Nobody complained about the Havers decision. Why not show a major decision they got wrong? They did. they did. They did show the decision they got wrong. The last one they showed was uh, one that they got wrong where they hadn't reviewed the original part of it. Was it even Tony getting the penalty, winning the penalty by oh, yeah, doing the old yeah, GA yeah. trick of like clamping, clamping the elbow to him. So they did show that. But the Arsenal Brentford one? No, because that's what in the, a lot of the comments on social media were asking for that one to be shown. Was it Arsenal? That's when they apologised for it. See, they've come out and apologised. I don't even know if the apologies are actually helping them. Well, which, which is a, another commendable thing to do. I think you to criticise them for that as well. I think they do help in that it's like, you are correct. We've listened to you. We were wrong. And if you're still, if the person is still angry after that, then they're just a bit of a dickhead. Mm. Like that's in, in a yeah, little, little bit of friendly advice in human life. When you apologise to somebody and you're sincere about it and the other person is still angry, then that's on them. Uh, so, yeah. Do you remember when they did um, mic up the managers? Big Sam and Dave Bassett about 20 years ago, Bolton against Leicester. It was a part of a TV documentary to show the heart rate of the managers. Oh, yeah. How, how, how like tight they go to the brink. We have Vinnie Perth here standing by. We should definitely ask Vinnie about this. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Whatever we mic'd up for uh, here's what's coming up between now and 10 o'clock for you this morning. As uh, Colm has said, Vinnie Perth is standing by. Keith Wood at 20 past 8. Emma Sanders talking football at 8.40. Colm O'Rourke is going to join us live at 8.55. Tommy Rooney's power rankings. It's uh, uh, an orgy of me today. And then Colin Boyle at 9.30. Um, so anything else very quickly we want to go through some... Uh, well, the game itself. Quick bits. Oh, sorry. It was a if, routine 3-0 win. If you're watching Vote Fe- If you watch the two games of Leicester and Liverpool play this season, you would think Vote Feist was lumped off a Sunday league match and thrown in because they couldn't find anyone else my word he was crap last night and crap again in the previous in the reverse fixture uh, Johnny Evans was it you were saying this morning first game in since October like, that's ridiculous like, Dean Smith's just like panic stations now throw in these lads like the, defensively they're abysmal now, Liverpool, were, Liverpool were good last night but Leicester they're only going they're, they're going down lads Tell there's not a, a brave chance. interviewer Patrick Davison and Sky Sports getting braver 
each interview. Well, Asked Johnny Evans afterwards last night, uh, did you feel like you had to play tonight to do yourself, to do your team a favour? Like, were you not ready to play? And Johnny just says, no, I was ready. Didn't elaborate. Ugh. And Patrick let a little gap go, a little silence. Mm. Kind of, you sure? And moved on with the next question. Braver, this is a guy that Jurgen Klopp often has a problem with. Yeah. That's interesting questions, but uh, yeah, Evans uh, faced the media, but Leicester, like, God, they're done for. I think They've won one of their last 15 games. Johnny Evans, stand-up character, brilliant career. It's unfortunate it's going to finish like this, but... Mm. Um, one of Louis Van Hal's mistakes, sending Johnny Evans. Yeah. As cheap as he was. Yeah, to West Brom. You look at the Leicester squad, Madison's going to go, Barnes is going to go for big money, Tielemans will go for a free, Ndidi, Samari, Castagna, all these players are, like, Leicester are going to have a completely different squad next season. Like, so many players are going to go. Um, that's assuming they get relegated. Even if they don't get relegated, Madison and Barnes will still probably leave, you'd imagine. It's hard to see them coming back from this, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yesterday was the two-year anniversary of their FA Cup win. Their first ever FA Cup 2021. That's mad. And like you forget how decent their campaign was last season. They finished eighth, got to the semi-final of the Europa Conference League, mm. lost to the eventual winners Roma by the odd goal. And the two previous seasons they finished fifth yeah. with that FA Cup thrown in. And this time last year, Brendan Rodgers was talking about if we can just improve our defending at set pieces, add a couple of players here and there, things are looking good. Yeah. There was a, uh, Jonathan Northcott wrote about this in the Sunday Times at the weekend about the demise of Leicester City this season. He, he comes back after pre-season it's like yeah. oh, if we can stay up we get 40 points we're doing well that's new, a quickly changed they have Newcastle yep. uh, and then their last game of the season is at home to West Ham who may already be cup champions and safe by that stage so it's not entirely beyond the bounds of possibility they win the last game of the season and uh, perhaps have a miracle last day escape are Liverpool going to get top four like they are well, they need well United Man United Newcastle United need two wins out of the last three games Newcastle's games are Brighton at home Leicester at home Chelsea away whereas Manchester United plays Bournemouth away this weekend and then they have Chelsea and Fulham at home Newcastle will beat Leicester and Chelsea so that's okay you think so? yeah they're on a bit of a slide though Newcastle they're okay they're not really Liverpool are they're getting there they're still snookers required stage but they're they're closing down um, Liverpool obviously have to win their last couple of games but you feel like they're, they're absolutely going to in this form uh, and transfer kick last night was just ridiculous by the way do we need to talk about Liverpool uh, like the thing about their players all being the midfield all being past it not being the correct narrative and the defence the defensive issues being because the forwards weren't like is it have they actually managed to fix everything or is this just because there's no pressure on them mm, could be a decent argument yeah like, um, is, is, is there as much remedial work required as we thought or is there still loads and loads and loads of remedial work required because you know this, this form they're on at the moment is like Manchester City title winning form yeah seven games one in a row um um, that, yeah, but look at who they've played. Like, look at the last few games. So since the two all at Arsenal, like they've had Leeds, Nottingham Forest, West Ham, Tottenham, Fulham, Brentford, Leicester. They should win all those games, and they have done. I think it's the opposition playing into account. They definitely need to replenish them in field. Like Jordan Henderson was, was and Fabinho were good players, but sure. you should rely but on them completely. Was it more tactical that? Uh, everybody worked Klopp out and it, it's taken him half the season to work out what his change is going to be he's made those changes a few tweaks a few players have come back from injury fair enough but that actually the team isn't as drastically bad so adding Trent's energy into midfield kind of means that you can still have the midfield that they've had that they're, you're not throwing the baby out here yeah. you're actually anyway we can, come back exposed, to that. we can come back to that other stuff that we, you want to talk about yeah the jersey clash in the Ulster final lads 
I, I didn't see one. This, j- j- I didn't see one. I saw one team that has a big round white thing in the middle of it. How close were you to the screen? One was like red this? and one was orange. No, if I'm that close, I couldn't see anything. Um, I, I look, I just, in fairness, you made the point that it was more confusing than it needed to be, and that's a fair point. <laughs> Derry do have an away jersey, which would have been. You know, the white, the, the white, the white, white the jersey stripes. is their main jersey. Like the, the, um, the red is their alternate. They threw on their alternate kit. And by the way, Armagh's orange is not as vibrant an orange as it usually is this year. But they also could have worn their black jersey, which they are trying to market left, right, and centre in Armagh. They want to sell that black jersey like nothing normal. So Derry chose to wear the red. Yeah, Derry chose to wear the red. Their white and Armagh were like, well, that doesn't make any sense. I personally did not see the the clash. I like I, maybe there's. A much deeper orange red colour blindness in the Irish. We have a, it's like the, what's the stigmata? Uh, curiously Irish stigmata. But like, I think if you were, if you were in St. Genix Park, it probably wouldn't have been as obvious the Jersey Clash, but certainly on television, I thought this is, this I is I watched on BBC, perfect. I don't know, maybe, maybe they're, they're something slightly different going on with their cameras or something. Yeah, possibly. Higher, higher level of grading or something. Mm. Why didn't they, uh, they had to change it to make it easier. The whites. I don't. I don't. I, I, I don't know why they didn't wear the, the whites. The, I would like to hear the players. It's, it's not terrible in that photograph that we've put up. It's not terrible in that photograph because there's a big white stripe in the middle of it. Yeah, but that's because it's it's close up. But on the t- on the but TV, it's, it's far away as well. For the TV viewer, there was thirty thousand people in Ulster that it was probably fine for. But for the hundreds of thousands probably watching on TV and if that home. was, oh, I couldn't. I couldn't. I, I I was looking at Twitter, getting angry about this, and I was like, I don't see this. Uh, the big white stripe in the middle is the giveaway that that's the Dairy Lads and the other one is not the Dairy Lads. I was, <laughs> like, at, I was if, that was, if that was Cork versus Armagh I would 100% I'd be like yeah no too, too I have to say lucky. my experience was affected by it I, like I have good I have good eyesight good colour vision and oh, I was in a hotel obviously you don't well go on. listen I was in a hotel watching it from a reasonable distance from the TV I wasn't sitting up beside it Okay, but um, I, I was like the times I was confused. You were a little bit tipsy after the weekend in Manchester too. You no, got no. Got a little bit of context into this. It was the goal kicks. Do you know when the Coming goal kicks? Coming down off the high of, of Ronnie O'Sullivan. And Possibly. You're like, yeah, maybe, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's that lad there? <laughs> what? Maybe that was it. Cloudy. I like to hear the players' thoughts on it. Yeah. Were they able to see? No. Is there any problem there? I thought um, it's classic GA like. Ah, yeah. Typical. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Have a bit of uh, cohesion beforehand. What are you going to wear? And ultimately, whose decision like is it? Like a night out. Is it, is it the Ulster Council's decision? It probably is. Like, they're the ones, it's their tournament. So, you know, anyway. I do I do agree that the whites, you're in your whites and you're in your orange. We've tossed, where did you toss? Oh, the, it was the crappy quiz toss yeah. in advance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are you going to do about it? Jobs wear the whites. Yeah, yeah. That jersey's nice. And then oh, we're like, not, but then if they come out not wearing their whites, you just find them. And then the county board is like, okay, we're doing what we're told. And all of a sudden... Uh, the white yeah. and black would have looked brilliant. Mm. Our man black, Derry in their white with a little bit of red. Ah, it, They missed the perfect opportunity to have one of the great jersey clashes. Uh, the most aesthetically pleasing GA match out there. Cork against Dublin. Aesthetically pleasing? Yeah, a beautiful red against a beautiful blue. Ooh, What problems there, like... Uh, That's I, what you need to aim for. I think you're, you're wrong. It's uh, Kildare versus Sligo in the under-20 final. Uh, black yeah. versus white. That's actually... I think black and white too. Uh, too black and white. Oh, I think uh, the course Dublin is just a bit of summer, a bit of summer colouring. I I don't know. It the depends. The, the Dublin jersey has improved in recent years. It was terrible for about three decades, but they've got their act together in the last uh, seven or eight years. Well, there was a version of it a few years ago. It was my favourite. I think it's gone backwards now. And it was the white collar. Um, three or four years. Their ago. Argentina jersey was amazing. But anyway, let's oh, move on. Oh, Marcello. Sorry, I thought you were going to segue from Argentina into Carlos Tevez there, but... Well, I was about to go to Marcelo Bielsa's yeah. back. Yeah. Uruguay, overnight. I thought Leeds United should have seriously considered reappointing him mm. after Jesse Marsh. 
and even Javi Grazia. But if Big Sam keeps them up, obviously it's job done. Good appointment. You can't but go back. You can't go back. I, I would can't. make an exception for Bielsa because he himself is such a unique character. Big Sam is not back getting the job again. after the summer. You can't give it to him. There's no way. There's no way on earth Big Sam is getting the job based on the first two games. I don't think. Or anyway, I don't think anyway. Like, do you really think that the the American investors are going to come over and be like, yeah, he's the guy for us? They're not. They're not going to do that. No, he could win them over with his um, salesmanship. Wow, and there was, you were saying there was an amazing story on um, uh, the football kickoff last week where Big Sam just chartered a jet one time because yeah. there, there was a, a plane delay. Yeah, I was talking to Keith Tracy about this. So Tracy played under uh, Big Sam at Blackburn. I was saying oh, when he was Newcastle manager, he was only there mm. for like um, eight months. Yeah, Got a helicopter in, but they took the company car off him when he was leaving, so he had to get a lift home. The quick demise of Big Sam. But Keith Tracy was saying, oh, you have similar stories. I have one for you there. Uh, when they were travelling somewhere with Blackburn, Flight was delayed. Big Sam having none of it. He's like, no, 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 no. Get a private jet. 60 grand he dropped in his credit card. No bother at all. Oh, he paid for himself? He, he does not wait for time. He does his own thing. Do He's on Big he, Sam time. Do you think he claimed it back on expenses after? I'm not sure. We never got to that part. That's part two probably, coming up this week. You probably don't know. You, you don't get to hear those things. That's uh, like, you know, maybe the chairman a- was And like, are you in any way surprised that Sam would do something like that? That's a chance. Because I, I asked that to Keith and Keith was like, oh no. Totally in character. Right. Yeah. Also said he's a great lad, and he's brilliant to the night out. So oh, that that doesn't good company me like yeah. You know, um, so very quickly, mm-hmm. uh, Manchester City and Manchester United, Neville and uh, Carragher, picked yeah. them. They picked um, the combined eleven between the treble winning side for Manchester United in nineteen ninety nine and this season's Manchester City side, who of course uh, are on themselves the brink of a treble. Gary Neville's eleven was the ninety nine eleven. Including himself at right back. Jamie Carragher's 11 was a bit uh, more subtle. You had Kyle Walker at right back. Ruben Diaz centre half with Yapstam. Ilkay Gundogan and Jack Grealish in midfield with De Bruyne and Haaland up top. Took Gary Neville out, obviously. Obviously took Gary Neville out. Yeah, but kept Irwin, Stam, Schmeichel, Keane and Beckham uh, in his 11. Uh, Grealish's stats uh, superior this season than Giggs's were in 99. Mm. Giggs up to the final had three goals and one assist last season. Not a great campaign. I wouldn't massively argue with Carragher's team except for Skulls being taken out. Gundogan in instead of him. Gundogan's brilliant, but... <sighs> yeah, Carragher made the point that um, Skulls wasn't always starting that season. Mm, exactly. Not on the team. He's not on the team. He couldn't get the Man United team. What are you all talking about? Oh, he was the greatest midfielder of all time. Alex Ferguson didn't think so because he didn't pick him. Scored in the FA Cup final against Newcastle that, that season. Pretty important at various junctures throughout the season as well. Couldn't get in the team. He would have started the Champions League final if he wasn't suspended. I don't know. Um, would he have started because Roy Keane was suspended? Like, would he? Would he definitely have started? I don't. Maybe he would. Maybe he wouldn't. I don't know. But like, there's a there's a lot of skulls. Skulls had a great career, uh, and his longevity was massively impressive. And his comeback from retirement was massively impressive. Mm. But, uh, like, he wasn't in the same class as Roy Keane. Skulls. He, yeah. Different player. He's a different player, but he wasn't in the same class. There's like a class of players, of tier, a tier of players. Is that because like, we're uh, Irish, though? Are no. we saying that because we're Irish? No, I don't think so. I don't think he was in the same class as Javi. I don't think he was in the same class as Iniesta. I think he was a very good player. He had, a, he had an excellent career. But if you ask Javi and Iniesta, they would say he absolutely well, was. But sure, like, here's the thing. Players always say other players are amazing. Not what, always. What's their, what, what benefit is there well, without, because then you end up coming across... 
They don't have to like say a, anything. A bit they of dick. They don't have. They never had to speak, speak about Paul Scholes. But I'd they say did. they were all asked. Of course, they were all asked by the English media. Oh, Paul Scholes, he's world class, isn't he? Yes, he is world class. Yes, world class, excellent. But I also killed him. When they talk about Scholes, they talk about latter half of his career. Scholes, when he started playing deeper and controlling games, because Scholes was put up front when they signed Juan Veron. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he was a sacrificial lamb in the midfield four, the famous four. Which didn't actually play together that often. And if he's world class, why why was he being sacrificed? It was more when he actually changed, when he wore the long sleeves as a young fella, he was scoring goal goal scoring midfielder, changed the short sleeves, dropped back, played in the deep line playmaker role. And that's when I think his peers that are talking about him as this great player. When you're comparing him to Roy Keane, I think he's incomparable. I I don't. I can never remember a player like Keane. I'd have Luke Modric ahead of him. Miles ahead of him. Um. Miles and yeah, long, longevity at the top level, probably. I mean, you forget Skulls retired and came back, of course, after six I, months. I, I gave him extra points for his longevity. Anyway, 7.44, OTBAM live with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon Night Edition is available now. We're talking League of Ireland with Vinnie Perth next. OTBAM. The Sports Breakfast Show from Off the Ball. It was low-key a massive night in the League of Ireland last night because uh, the teams who were in European action were all playing against each other. Vinnie Perth is with us in studio to talk to us about this. So Derry took care of business at home against Dundalk with a, a 3-0 win. Rovers needed a late penalty to get all three points against uh, St. Pat's. And I'm going to talk to you about those in a second. I did want to just ask you, and in light of the re- refereeing conversations that we've been having recently, um, last night on uh, Sky, Monday Night Football, Howard Webb came in and explained how VAR works. They showed that they have live audio feed and live video feed of what's going on, how the decisions are reached. And it just struck me that, like, this is really good. It's very educational. If only they could show us this in real time, away we go. Yeah, I I always said, um, I think you need a bit of context for why people make any decision in life. And I think that's the key to it. It's like um, there was a yellow card recently in League of Ireland game that people went, or sending off, that people went bananas over. But if a referee had been allowed to say, well, that was his fifth foul, I think it kills the argument very quickly, or fourth foul, or whatever it is. And I, um, I didn't see last night's uh, stuff, and i only seen small bits of it here and there, people saying just stuff. But um, it's good to see it being explained. Um, you know, I, I, uh, the cynic in me says, like, Sky can be quite soft on these people, because I think they're, they work together as oh, part yeah. of... Mm-hmm. Um, so there's there's a lot of decisions you'd like a real and I know they did go into one um, where they got made a mistake but there's a lot of decisions um, I, I'm completely on your side with, with the offside ones I always my brain goes to when's the ball being kicked and when did he exactly freeze yeah. frame because if you're going to go into millimetres of an offside it has to be on the other millimetres in terms of when the ball left his foot and he never go into that detail and so you can't have one and the other it's like the, and I know it's slowed again and we almost have to really focus on when the ball leaves his foot and then go back to the offside if you're going to draw the lines yeah, that, that yeah. minute so for me that's that's a I huge think, question that needs to be asked I think that will come I have yeah, to say yeah. I think eventually that they'll be like okay we we, we know for whatever reason there's there's daylight and I think with like the improvement in cameras we're going to get there sooner rather than later but I do think the ex- ex- explaining stuff really helps and hopefully this is like a, a new era of it. I mean, like, miking up all referees will mm. be a good start. Yeah, I, th- I think within within reason, I think you've also got to remember um, and people all, all, always reference rugby in terms of the refs mic and it's brilliant and I really enjoy that. just think... Within reason, I think the certain sports you, tend to... You still want to be able to um, yeah, occasionally I think, swear. But, but I think... I think uh, 
you often find referees aren't afraid to swear back as well. No, and, they're, they're... and there's a way of managing certain situations that um, I often say to people, particularly being being a dub, because um, I've worked with a lot of people outside of, of Dublin, when a Dublin fella tells you to F off, he doesn't. doesn't mean that F <laughs> off. But if, and when you're coaching, and it's actually an art of coaching. So if if um, someone from from down the country tells you to F off, you, you'll give out to them. You'll, you'll, you'll go, don't speak to me like that. That's not acceptable. But if someone from Dublin does it, he actually doesn't, he's not telling you. Ah, this is culture bias. This is bias against culture. Yeah, here, but there's a way. Look but, at this. But so we a, can't say it, but you can say it. Yeah, so it's it's part of our DNA and our language. It's completely different. It's uh, using ah, your own here. language uh, and your own way of saying certain things. I'm sure you've got words that make no sense to us. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, you have to get you have to you have to let us have. Uh, I, I think have our so the Dublin club should be allowed to say say the words. I think the audience would appreciate that, though. You know, we'd all be like, ah, it's okay. You know, yeah. one of my teammates at that uh, junior level got, got got a yellow card recently for telling the ref to f off, but he, he meant it in the way you're you're talking about. Like, ah, I like yeah, yeah, more exasperation yeah. than than Adam. Like you know, so there is, there is a little bit. Of, there's a grey area there. That's why we need to be careful where we go with it. That's all. Just, <laughs> all right. Okay. Uh, I'm was, just speaking up for the townies today. Um, the Dubs. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, right about Rovers. Um, so a ninety. Sorry, an eighty-eight minute penalty to win it. Yeah. I have to say, um, and I'd like to think on balance. You know, you know, we'll hear today. Brilliant game football, all this stuff, and um, and you know two teams three two, but it was it was all of that. And when it's not, I'll say it's not. But today, last night, there was um, just shy of seven thousand people in the ground on a Monday night, and you've got to remember, um, it's a skill night, so mm. yeah, which is a huge crowd for any sporting event in Irish, unless it's something being like an international or whatever. But that was a huge crowd. Uh, weather was decent. Stadium played a big part in it um, I seen um, Jonathan Hill at the game uh, I had a brief chat with him when we were leaving and he was it, it was great to see um, I know he goes to a lot of games to be fair to him that's the, the, the uh, from the FEI but you can see there's a product here there's something coming and there's a um, and and actually I hadn't seen my sister and my niece in a long time and my niece plays for P-Mount under 14s Better say, um, Emmett, they won the cup against Bowes the weekend. But I seen them walk into the game last night. So, why do I bring that up? Is my sister normally wouldn't go to a game, but her daughter's bringing her to it. And because she's playing with P Mount, she has an interest. And uh, thankfully, she's chosen Pats as her club, right? <laughs> I mean, that's a joke. But there's two more people statistically going to a game. Yeah. And, and it's because of the women's football. It's because of yeah. she wants to be the next Katie McCabe or whoever. And there's, there's something bubbling along here nicely. And I just think it's important to reference that. That's just two people that I know that happen to see picked out in the crowd amongst thousands going to a game. It does feel like the clubs are aware of this as well, that actually you have a, you have a, a competition, a friendly competition within the clubs to recruit new yeah. new fans. And... They're going about it the right way, as opposed to like um, you know being close to it. Well, it's all done, a lot of it's done through social media. So kids now, and and the thing about the thing about bringing young ki- so many young kids are at games now. What's brilliant about it is they're they're getting this passion for football, right? So whether they're footballers or not, that's almost a relative. Where the game will grow and earn is they'll become the next administrators, they'll become the next coaches, they'll become the next referees, they'll become the next whatever. And I think I think it's so important to recognise that 
whether it's by whether it's a detailed plan or whatever, it doesn't really matter. But what we're doing with these young kids at games is is actually developing the game for 20, 30 years. And the non, most of them won't become footballers. I mean, it's it's now becoming cutthroat in League of Ireland as well to get to, into the elite level, which is, you know, it's great. But at the same time, we, we're creating this, um, this brilliant environment around football. And I think it needs to be said sometimes as well as when we get things wrong, call them out. But I, I, I was delighted to see... Uh, a niece of mine from up the road from Tallis Stadium walking into the game yesterday to support John McRovers and um, and I know why that's happened. It's happened because of the knock-on effect of a girl who has been given an opportunity to play football at a decent level with a good club and then uh, St. Pat's have, have captured her imagination and then she's become a supporter and she has to drag her parents along with her. We were having a conversation on uh, Thursday night, went down on the radio on Friday night, you can listen back to it on, on the football stream podcasts about uh, the impact of the women's success now and it feels a, a lot to me like there was a bang of uh, the qualification for uh, Euro 88 off this campaign which ends with a very scratchy uh, win in Hampden Park but it felt too that there was big lessons that we could have learned from how the game didn't grow domestically after that success. It feels a good bit better now looking at the current FAI about their plans and the people who are in charge of helping to grow the women's game in particular. But as you say, it's a knock-on impact where it's actually a rising tide that lifts all boats. Yeah, and I think um, I'm not going to be claimed to be an expert. I just don't have time to be in any way an expert in any sort of... Women's football, I have a, I have a, a passing interest for obvious reasons. So many things uh, interject. But I heard, um, and apologies, our name's going to help me. I heard that interview was played out over the weekend. I was in the car. Um, it must have been Saturday afternoon, maybe, uh, that, that you did on Thursday night, bits of it. And and I, I apologies, I can't remember the lady's name. It was Linda Gorman, I think, probably, is who you're talking about. But go on, I'll tell you but, exactly. Uh, the, the lady who played... Uh, all them years Linda ago. Linda Gorman, yeah. Linda Gorman. She was... I, I, I found her an inspiring woman when she spoke about football. Mm. I actually... You know when some people capture imagination, and apologies uh, to Linda Gorman for, for not remembering her name, um, but you know when someone speaks, you're like, yeah, this is this is, this is is the person I want to I hear speak to. You feel to. what it means to her, football. Yeah, it was, and it was so genuine and so real, and there was almost like... Um, and, uh, so, so I go analyse now. Almost a little bit... Like she was pouring her heart out in a really good way to say, I, almost like you felt sorry for her that she didn't get the opportunity because she was so genuine about about football, forget women's football, about football, about what it takes, and um, and and in no way was she bitter towards. And that's the problem in many ways in the men's game. There's a little bit of bitterness around. He said something to me twenty years ago and yeah. all this stuff, and it was so uh, it was really refreshing to hear. And I, I heard it on the radio over the weekend, and it was oh, it was brilliant, it really was. Uh, so the football last night, yeah. Rovers, these are the games that are, when they look back on, uh, when they're picking the trophy up at the end of the season, it feels like these are the games they're going to be like, yeah, we deserve the trophy because we were able to take everything Pats gave to us and come through. Yeah, it, it was, um, honestly, it was such a good game last night. It was it was tactically as well brilliant, right? Great occasion, but tactically brilliant. Pats done something slightly different, okay? They, the first half of the game, a half-time for 45 minutes, uh, Pats were well ahead of, of Rovers. They dominated them in midfield. So you're talking about a midfield of Richie Tell, Jack Bourne, Gary O'Neill, Graham Burke. But Pats were hungry in midfield. They looked, they actually looked the fresher team, although Rovers had made six changes from playing on Friday night against UCD. 
And what they done was Owen Doyle dropped him to midfield. And it's it's when you play against a back three, they always say the way to hurt them is in the wide areas. Okay, so McClelland and Do- uh, Mark Doyle played really wide. Mark Doyle in particular stood there and it forced. It forced. So Rovers play with a back three and the three centre halves. So they forced Dan Cleary into a wide area that he didn't want to go mm-hmm. into. And tactically, it made it a brilliant game. So at half time, Rovers had one chance. It was a header from a deep free kick and nothing else. And then right in, so for 45 minutes, Pats win the lead, deservedly so, had the biggest chance of the game and scored a great goal through Mark Doyle. Albeit it was a deflection, it was great pressure and really forced Rovers back. And it was good to see someone tactically do something different against them. But unfortunately, in the the referee put two minutes up extra time. Ball was running out of play. Young Sam Curtis, who's a, who's a really good talent, gone through a bit of a, a spell now because he's such a young player. He's only 17. And Neil Frugia uh, is one of them where you try and shepherd the ball out. Neil Frugia hooks the leg around. Um, Graham Bourke gets a shot, decent save, and Rovers score off of the resulting corner. And I'd say that that was a huge moment in the game, mm. albeit um, the second half changed. But that was huge, and it was it was brilliant to see somebody tactically try something different against Rovers. Rovers. So were they leaving Lopez as the only defender on Owen Doyle, essentially one on one kind of thing at the back? No, well, so on Doyle will drop in. So what what you get against, and again, it's something teams should do more when they play against this tree system. Is is on Doyle got involved with Rovers play with a box midfield, mm. so they play with four two two, and it probably didn't suit them last night. Ultimately, you've got Richie Tell and Graham Bork trying to do the same things, but Richie has to do it from a little bit deeper. And actually, when um, Richie scored a, a great header in the second half from breaking from deep and that's what he's brilliant at but maybe at times they've got to find that combination of him and Bork together can be can be difficult but Jack Bourne and Graham Bork were very quiet last night mm. and that's when I spoke a couple of weeks ago when you hit the sweet spot of a, of a team and a league winning team and the best example of it is and I, I don't always like going to England is Gundogan at the moment mm. just when 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 your team is a little bit stuck one of your other players and it's not that Towel is below the level of the other guys. It's just when someone else comes and steals the moment. Yeah. And Richie Towel bro- breaking from midfield was brilliant last night. And um, but to be fair to Pats, they stuck at it. And again, tactically, uh, they they had a throw in on um, their left hand side. And the way Rovers play and the way they're set up, and it, it, it annoys me that other teams don't see it. Is they shift everyone over so they're vulnerable on the switch and. Uh, from a throw in on the left, Pat's right full gets a shot off. Uh, keeper should do better, and um, uh, Ben McCormick sneaks in and it's two all. And you think, yeah, Rovers were excellent in the second half, but you think maybe it draws a fair result. But ultimately, uh, the, the pressure of Rovers and Tell uh, uh, steps up. A big player, Richie, who scores big goals over many years, scores a penalty, and uh, it was a tremendous game. Uh, two teams really went for it. Um, but you could tell that Rover, Rovers made six changes against UCD and Pats freshened up a little bit with three, but the, the freshness of the Rovers squad and the quality Strength and depth. won the game for him. Chris Forrester heavily involved in a lot of the good Pats things by all accounts? Yeah, he was very good in the first half. And remember, so we, we'll all have debates of who's the best player and all that stuff. But we've got some really important stars in, in our league in our, our times. Graham Bork and 
Uh, Jack Bourne, as I said, were quiet by their standards last night. But Forrester was everything that was good about Pats um, last night. Really, really good. Um, but they, you know, they had a lot of. Uh, it was a really good team performance from the without outstanding players, and I put that down to the manager. Then he obviously set the team up really well. Uh, we needed, for the sake of the league, we needed Derry City to win last night and at least keep some pressure up on Shamrock Rovers, and that's kind of what we're going to be looking for now. Rovers are on this run, and they they've just been excellent, and they've been taking care of business. But Derry took care of business last night with a routine three 0 win against Dundalk, which maybe we didn't anticipate would be so easy for them uh, well what I would say is Dundalk have won a lot a lot of games late, lately without playing that well um, like they won really poor against Cork but scored two really late goals on Friday night uh, deep in injury time Pat Hoban scored seven minutes into injury time I think it was to win that game but what we are seeing with Derry to be fair to them I've been a bit critical of Derry because I think the start rowers have had the fact that nobody is is, is ahead of them at this stage um, or, or at least uh, uh, yeah they should be ahead of them Derry have a good enough but to be fair to Derry they've got Duffy back now playing and he is you know people talk about Jack Bournes and Graham Borks Michael Duffy is up there wingers are different because they float in and out games but Michael Duffy's up there one of the best players in the last 10 years to play League of Ireland and again scoring last night but uh, Cameron Dummigan coming back into the team is huge and Derry on a really good run. We need Derry to be consistent, um, and like they, they did a great win against Bowles on Friday night, and that was a real marker for them. Again, not playing well, but their form up in Dublin is excellent. The concern for Rory Higgins would have been the form at home is not that good on that pitch, but that was a big win last night, and it gives them um, a real belief as I said when, when the likes if you're a player and Dummigan is back and he's scoring and Duffy's back in the team and you see Connolly back training and McElhenney nearly there it gives you huge confidence they're only two points behind Rover so touch wood and, and I think I think Derry have the finances to strengthen in the window as well if needs be so um, looks it looks like we're about to have a bit of a bit of a title race it'd be good for the league yeah, absolutely needs it. Um, well, well, Rovers aren't blowing teams away um, in any way, shape, or form. They're giving up a lot of chances at times, and you could see like it wouldn't have been a shock if it had been a two-all last night. So that's the good thing in many ways. Yeah, it does feel like Rovers haven't quite clicked into their full form yet. That actually they'll get better and better as the season goes on. Um, yes, not not to disagree, with you, but to say they need to be more clinical. Like they they'd only really, I think two shots on target last night in the penalty that's where they need to go up a level around that final tour and find the right balance they probably didn't get the right balance in their midfield right last night I, I believe for a game like that at Dublin Derby someone like Dylan Watts is a big loss for them out of that midfield but then who do you leave out Bork or Tell or Jack Bourne <laughs> so that's the that's the challenge of being the manager with all the resources last night's result notwithstanding Dundalk won't be too displeased like six game unbeaten run before last night I know Darley I think came off injured with an ankle complaint in the first half last night but still the recent signs have been good for them for them yeah they, they've picked up a lot of good wins and um, and they've stuck in games and, and got the job done the challenge they're having is they, they left out like uh, Hoban last night again they put him on the bench Daniel Kelly they Dundalk squad need everybody fit if they're if they're to mm. achieve anything and they've had Horrendous injuries, um, 
at different stages. Like in many, for many people who followed Dundalk for a long time, the team last night, Daryl Lee aside, is it's almost unrecognisable in many ways. You know, you've no Benson, no Daniel Kelly, no Hope, and no uh, Andy Boyle. Um, so they need to get them players fit um, if they're going to mount a challenge for European football because it's become so competitive now. One of the comments in from Shifty Lad, a player I wanted to ask you about. I don't, I don't think we've spoken about Mason Milia on the show yet. Made his yeah. debut at 15 years of age on Friday night. First, or the youngest league player, I think, for uh, for Pats. And Shifty Lad's making the point. Uh, didn't play last night. He thinks due to Irish under 17 involvement. Yeah. He's only 15. I mean, how good is this guy? Yeah, um, I, I, I've seen him twice play under fo- 15 football, but I haven't seen much more of him other than I've seen him play some international football. He plays for the 16s and 17s. Um, look. Uh, we don't have to hype him up too much don't worry yeah that's the problem I mean look he looks a real talent the problem with these guys is uh, you you've a catch 21 it's a bit like um, um, uh, Sam Curtis last night if Sam Curtis in before he wait for change the rules I think he'd be in a premiership club now and he still will probably go to one Mason Melia could do it probably going to it because he might be a level above and he could probably do it going to a premiership club but uh, the rules have, the rules have changed. But to be fair to St. Pat's, they've been very good at giving young players the chance. Uh, he's really exciting centre forward. Just just two of them at that club. Um, young Noonan as well is, is a name for people to watch. But Melia and Noonan are really really talented young players who have a huge chance. But you know, so many young players haven't kicked on. So he has a huge chance. Brilliant centre forward. And when you're when you're a manager, is it a case of when you're old enough, you're good enough with players like that, or is there a, a bit of reticence to bring in really young? Like I mean, fourteen, fifteen. We're talking Evan Ferguson's or Mason Amelia's. Is there because you're bringing them into a senior dressing room? Now, I think there was a player in the Premier League this season who had to get changed in separate dressing rooms to the senior lads for uh, obvious reasons. But it's it's an awkward one for managers because you want to put them in because they're good enough, but you don't want to bring them in too early either. Yeah, it, dep- it depends on the. Some kids are are fourteen, going on eighteen, and, and mm. I mean in their in their psyche or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Their, what's the word? Not mental development, but maturity. Maturity mm. is the word. Sorry, yeah. And then other other kids just aren't mature enough. And then there's the physicality side of it. There's that. And then um, the average age of league winning squads is probably higher than other squads because right. if you're trying to win a league, you can't throw in a 14 year old away you win nothing with kids is that what you're saying yeah yeah well look you probably don't statistically do you really um, you don't I mean the average age and I don't I, I would say it's still there of Shamrock Rovers is the oldest la- over the last couple of seasons it was Dundalk before that and when you're under pressure to win big games you don't tend to rely on a 17 18 unless they're exceptional Uh Connor Whelan in the comments says, might not be a question for now, but worth the discussion. My kids' football season is about to end. Seems like madness that there's not some form of summer football going on. It's, it's not even madness. It's just, what's a bigger word than madness? It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. I, I, I seen something where, um, was it Cherry Orchard? And it was because I, I grew up as an orchard lad and I see certain things. Oh, their final game of the season. And I'm looking at the window going, Bloody sun is shining. Finally, the, the, the sun is shining. Like the grass is now level. It's like why? Yeah. Why? Why? Because people go on holidays, and you miss do, players. Do people go on holidays for three months? Oh, so what? Like, like a kids miss it for two weeks. Get on with it. Like so, mm. it's just. Is that genuinely the reason? No, it's not. It's it's political. We're still there is a section within school by football, particularly around Dublin, that 
is not um not for changing and and just not um we should we should get them on because i i don't i actually don't understand why the football stops now when like we missed a month of football because the weather was bad and we're going to miss more sustained period of time because there's going to be like more periods of heavy rain and then the pitches will be unplayable because of drought at some point in the future and we have no plans for this yeah but even try and coach a kid when it's two or three degrees on a Monday night and it's pissing rain and the boys are in the face in. and they're crying and actually yeah and even like it's just it makes no sense look I don't want to be too critical of people who are by and large volunteers putting together a league and all that stuff but but I'm going to be critical and say they're just dinosaurs I'm sorry dinosaurs who aren't open enough to improve the game and not letting kids play throughout the summer or not creating and then some, maybe somebody has to take it off them and create a summer league and, and take it off them and you'd be surprised him at the kids and more kids who will play a summer league uh, and just do something about it yeah okay uh, right was there anything else that we need to talk about this week no just I think it's important to mention um, um, and, and ju- maybe young Ben Mc- uh, Ben Mc- uh, McCormick at uh, Drogheda United has come away from the game uh, with with some mental health issues. I think it's important to mention it because um, it, the bravery of a young kid to come out and say that and say it in public, and um, he's only a young kid trying to come true. So I think that's important to say. And Drogheda have been a really good uh, uh, club from um, in, in that sense. So um, no, sorry, Ben Curtis. I should have said sorry, but young Ben Curtis, young centre half, was at St Pat's. Um, and and the fact that he's been so open about it for me is 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 really good. It's great to see, and um, long may that sort of stuff continue because uh, Drogheda have been really supportive of Ben, um, and you just wish fellas like that well, particularly in the modern world. It's that, difficult for young players. That's something Drogheda have led the way because I know heading it was heading the game yeah. was, was the charity that obviously named the the, the stadium there heading the game park for Drogheda. I don't know if it's still. The, yeah, the no, they're still, but like that's a mental health charity that that have done. I know Dean Arrowsmith. I actually know the lad who's, who's involved in organising yeah. head in the game, and they've done serious work. So, but it's no surprise to me that Drada would be a great. No, club and for. to give their new, I think it's Weaver Park. It's a local businesses now, but uh, but they're still heavily associated mm. with head in the game park. Um, um, so, look, it's just important that um, that particularly young footballers, because it is becoming football is is is, is, cut, is cutthroat in many ways, and people are always. But Ben is part of a uh, Ben Court is part of a family of footballers, and uh, very very difficult for a lad to come out and say that at such a young age. It just shows you how the world is changing. That that stuff would have been hidden, and I hope some other players t- are inspired by it to say, well, if he does it, mm. why don't we all? 100% Finny good stuff thanks, thanks for joining us it's uh, 21 minutes past 8 this morning you're watching OTBAM we're live every morning across YouTube you can get us youtube.com forward slash off the ball or you can tell your smart speaker to play OTB Sports Radio and we have a live continuous radio feed there for you we're live with Gillette Labs get the ultimate shave or your money back Neon Night Edition is available now and I'm delighted to say Keith Wood is with us Keith good morning to you how are you? I'm very good Ger. thank you how are you? yeah good It's uh, it's been rare enough over the last decade really that we've got to speak about Munster beating Leinster in a big game so um, how are you feeling? Well I like the way your voice went up there at the end uh, saying that um, how am I feeling? Um, I'm delighted obviously um, I I thought it was a absolutely cracking game of rugby it was exciting from start to finish 
Um, and I thought Munster were the better team on the day. And, um, you know, it, it's been an interesting uh, journey this year in particular, watching how Munster have played. They were so poor at the start. Um, they, I think they got an awful lot of things wrong in trying to get things right. And from the onset, it didn't look like they were actually going to be able to get to where they wanted to this year, which was qualification for next year, the European, uh, the European Cup, but also the opportunity to be in the knockout stages, even that was at risk for a lot of it. But the last six or eight weeks have been pretty extraordinary. Um, they look sharp, they look fit. Um, and I have to say the drop goal at the end was, um, We'll slag Raj about it, but it was maybe um, not as important as some of Raj's kicks, but it was aesthetically very pleasing on the eye. Um, it was a fine piece of play taken early. Um, you often can can um, wait until the time is out and then it becomes a, a boom or bust kick, but uh, there was still a minute and a half left on the clock. So, uh, look, it was, it was a cracking game of rugby. It was very enjoyable. Yeah, there's a possibility that we will look back on it as just as important as some of those big Raj kicks in the European Cup because it's the start of something. It feels like this team needed something to go their way to just make sure that they believed all the messages that they were being told by their coaches. That's not to say that there was any signs that they didn't, but that you need something along the way to remind everybody that the work we've been doing is beginning to show signs of bearing fruit and that fruit is tasty. Yeah, look, I think this is the, um, I know there's been a lot of conversation about the fact that this can't be the final and there has to be, um, you know, they can't leave it there and it has to go on to the next part. Um, but without a shadow of a doubt, there is a monkey on the back with Leinster and Leinster have been the, the, the preeminent team for, for the last, um, 10, 12 years. <clears throat> They've been on fire. Um, and so for Munster to get the win over them was in, in, in a big match that counts, um, is, is hugely important. I think you can look back in it, but we won't know that for, for time to come yet. But, um, look, I, I, I was interested with the amount of celebration from, from the players because I, I do think, um, this is something that they've had to carry for a long time. And there's a chunk of players there who, who, who haven't tasted the success of the previous generation for Munster. So um, to try and get to that point of where they now have a proper chance at it. And also, I think if, if you know, if, if I look back on the last five or six years, it also was a performance in, in a semi-final. And uh, too often we have spoken about Munster's performances in the semis and finals that they've had in the last number of years. Um, I have been not turning up, of not playing, of not looking to play. So you could see, um, you know, the shoots of 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 a different style of a like it's, it's hugely different, but it's it's different. And there is a willingness to try things and a, a willingness to have a go. And it wasn't perfect by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, I think but in the previous semis and finals, uh, there was nothing. It was kick the ball, try and win it back, stay in the game, eke out a win at the very end. This wasn't that type of performance. This was this was a changed performance. It's a culture shift. It feels like where they are willing to try stuff, and it doesn't feel like they're going to be hauled over the coals for making a single mistake. And so it just felt like it's a quantum leap forward. Why is Roundtree able to get this performance? Why is Roundtree and his coaching ticket 
able to get this performance from this group or well, these performances? I think they're trying. I think they're, they're trying to play a different style. So um, um, I think uh, Lee Mee's defence has been excellent. I think Prendergast is... Um, uh, willingness to let guys go wide and still some of the passing isn't good enough, you know, and it's still, it's, it's a work in progress, but I think there is that shift to say, this is what we're going to go and do. And I also have to say, I think it's built on um, pretty heavily on trying to promote Monster's own players, you know, and like we've had this conversation time and time again, but I think we we drifted away from that for the last period of time, that it was easier to take a player in from overseas than it was to try and uh, develop your own. And I think um, in the last year, um, and actually partly because of COVID in the year before, um, some of the younger guys were getting a chance and getting an opportunity to go and play. Um, but the vast core of that team were from Munster. And... This isn't anyway. Um, I, like I always think, Monster need to have a couple of players either from uh, other parts of Ireland or from overseas to to bolster the numbers. But the core of the team still has to be Monster. That looked like much more of a Monster team. Had a feel for it as well. Um, so I look for me. It just there was a change. You no, know, Leinster played uh, played their part in that by. Not picking a full uh, a full strength side, um, which which I was unbelievably surprised by, and um, but you know, monsters can only do what they can do, and they did what needed to be done. You were, you were surprised by the Leinster selection, Keith. It's one of the difficulties that Leinster have. We talk about the 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 strength of their system, and their system is extraordinarily strong with uh, with a huge number of players coming through the school system. And they've been building on the wider club system to try and get more players in through. They have strength and depth that everybody would would wish for, um, except when you have to try and keep them all happy and trying to keep every single every single player involved. That is a fairly unique um, circumstance that Leinster have to deal with all the time. And it's funny. I was looking at the game. I was looking when the team was announced actually, and I was just trying to think how. How peeved would I be if I was a, um, a Leinster player not getting a chance to play in, in, in a semi-final and now not getting a chance to play in a final that they may have gone? I mean, it's hard for players are there to win trophies. And I, I, that as a selection seemed to be missing too many of the, of the players. It could have been far more of a, of a, um, of a mix if you wanted to rest players. It's, these are the only important games of the season when you get to this time of the season. So you still need to be putting out as close to your best team as you can. And uh, for me, that smacked of overconfidence. Um, and I think Leo Cullen said the same. He just, he said, look, he got it wrong. And and I do think that, you know, when, when Munster woke up to the team announcement that was there, they'd say, okay, there's enough of guys there that aren't... Um, uh, maybe aren't world beaters, so maybe we can we can go after them. So, look, I, that's the case. I think it heaps colossal pressure on Leinster now again for for this weekend. So, um, um, and they have put all their eggs in this basket. So it it leads to a very interesting weekend. It does lead to a very interesting weekend. What's your instinct at the moment about how that's going to go? And 
the relative way both sides are coming into it? Well, I, I see. For me, it's never give us never give a sucker an even break. So, um, Leinster losing in the Aviva, that is a chink, and they wanted to make that impregnable. And all the chat has been about the fact that Leinster have their own way in both competitions, that they're playing all their matches at home, which I think is just a a benefit of the quality in which they've played all season, which has been absolutely extraordinary, but also the the, the way some of the, the the cups have been structured, the leagues have been structured. So, but this is a big chink when you see them lose the week before. Um, so, I would have said pretty consistently that the home team wins, and they have done pretty much for for all the uh, the quarters, semis, any knockout matches and anything that we've seen for the most part this year. Um, and that just kind of flipped a little bit. So, I, look, I would have said anyway that Leinster were favourites for the match at the weekend. They should well be. I think they're slightly less favourites um, uh, than, the, than they were, but they still are favourites for it. I would still expect them to win at home with a fully stacked team. Um but again, you're like for 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 La Rochelle and Raj, he's thinking whatever chinks there are in the armor, let's go after those. And you know he'll try and do something that's a little bit different. And if he can get his players up to the pitch that he requires, um, and is he then going to be able to destabilize Leinster? And like I don't know, it's for me, it's. We've watched them play last year. We've watched all those big matches for the last few years. They're great games. They're intriguing games. I mean, I'm looking forward to this this weekend as well because for me, they are the two best teams that have been in the in the competition and they're getting a chance to play each other again in a final. It's becoming a real proper rivalry. Yeah, it's like it genuinely has been one of those titanic things that catapults the European Cup into something that isn't just... A, a regular run-of-the-mill tournament. And I think, I think the fact that O'Gara has such a long-storied relationship with the competition that really helps. Like, uh, it, it's clear that La Rochelle will have another open-top bus parade if they win this. Not that, that really matters. If your two teams of Galacticos playing against each other and there's no backstory, there's no sense of real energy that you have. I mean, Roger's backstory is pretty fantastic. From um, from his his successes and failures, from his kicks that went over, his kicks that didn't go over, for playing for Munster, playing for Ireland, for winning trophies, for you know taking a um, a, a rare path to through coaching overseas, um, to then coming back to the rivalry to um, you know himself and Johnny Sexton. I mean, there's there's. There's 20 different stories to say that fit into this. That's why we love sport. It's the storytelling element of sport. Keith, I think we should reserve a special mention for, for Keith Earls. We didn't really get to touch on him yesterday, but I mean, he was so emotional after the match. Hasn't won a trophy for Munster in 12 years. That injury he picked up in April, as Keen Tracy pointed out on Twitter at the weekend, could have been the end of his Munster career. And yet he was brilliant uh, at the weekend. Well, I, I didn't think he was going to be playing. And I don't think anybody thought he was going to be playing. And... Um, you know, in that rush to come back from injury for such a big game, yeah, I think it's understandable you'll put a lot at risk to play that game. I think that's fair enough. I think the same could be said for Peter Romani. 
um, who looked seriously uh, uncomfortable the previous week. But for Keith Earls to come back, having played nothing this year, really, um, um, I'm glad they brought him out to talk afterwards. Interested to see how wrecked he was afterwards. You know, he put everything into it. And um, uh, for me, it's a really important idea. And I know it's kind of um, almost passe sometimes to talk about that the, the monster, that feeling. But for somebody who's been at the heart of it for a long time, you can see what it actually means um, uh, for him to get there. Uh, again, I would just hope that that emotional pitch is one that the um, that Munster are able to re-get to because they've had a fantastic last five or six weeks, um, but there was an outpouring of emotion after the game and they need to rebalance that. And thankfully for them, they have two weeks before they play again because I think it would be very hard to replicate that inside a week. There was an outpouring of emotion in South Africa as well when the uh, the Stormers players and coaches and families all realised it would be Munster and not Leinster that they were playing. Now, of course, the coach, head coach John Dobson, I think, has come out and said, well, look, it was also the fact that they don't have to travel uh, for the final now and the wives and girlfriends won't have to uh, say goodbye for, for 10 days. What did you make of all that? Yeah, I think it's both of those. Um, I think one was kind of covering up a little bit of the other one, which was fine. Um, but if you were any team in the world... Who would you rather play? Let's, let's be honest. You'd rather play Munster, not not Leinster, um, and uh, and you'd rather play at home. You know, and you're dead right. Their life became an awful lot easier for them. Doesn't mean it's going to be easy enough for them to win, but um, um, and they're pretty bitter about the manner in which Munster had gone down and, and had beaten them um, only a few weeks ago. Um, so that's another game that becomes one of those fantastic opportunities because um, an awful lot of teams that had gone there had lost. Um, Munster won. Munster dug out a win out of nowhere and their confidence has only grown since then. So, you know, that makes it... It's always still advantage to the home team. It really is. That's such a, that's such a huge thing in rugby. It's also a huge thing at the end of the season. So, um, like, if that ground gets... Full, which we just hope that it will, because we we look we you know, all these matches need to be played in 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 grounds with huge amounts of supporters. So, um, but no, I think it's understandable. It sounds like it will be full, and, and um, they will bring great colour to it, and it's going to be a great occasion. And um, yeah. and look, we have another week to to think about that one. But the game this weekend, from Leinster's perspective, Lancaster did his final Monday press briefing. He did interestingly say that at some point he'd like to come back and coach in Dublin again. He didn't say in Leinster. Is that like a, look, if the Ireland job ever becomes available, you should think about me? I think there's a, why not? Um, I, I, I've been interested by the lack of commentary over him leaving as to whether that's destabilising Leinster or not, where for every other coach we've seen leaving a place, we say, well, if you're going, go, you know, whatever the story is. I mean, there's a high level of affection to Stuart Lancaster. He has delivered a huge amount for this Leinster team with Leo Cullen. Um, yeah, he kept the door open, didn't he? He kept it ajar. I, I, there was a, quite a nod towards Ireland. But um, but like, like it's become a place for him to rehabilitate his career. I mean, he was on the rocks um, after uh, England in 2015. He was... Um, um, pretty much persona non grata in England. And he was like, uh, I think he made a couple of mistakes in that World Cup, but 
he had done so much good work prior to that and what he was actually doing with England. And I think Eddie Jones got the benefit of that actually for the, for the first couple of years afterwards as well. Um, I, I th- you're dead right. He's got a soft spot for Ireland. You know, he's got a chance to rebuild his career, um, not in necessarily the glare of the, uh, of the boss's role. I think, um, Leo Cullen has shielded him through that period of time. I think they've been a fantastic partnership actually. Yeah, and like he'd be uh, definitely one of the top candidates for the Ireland gig if that was to become available. Assuming, you know, I think if if O'Gara wanted it next, whenever Andy Farrell goes, you'd make him favourite. But um, if he didn't want it for whatever reason, if it wasn't the right time, uh, then you can also see how um, Lancaster could easily fit into that role from an Ireland perspective. And I, I, I think that it would be the type of thing that would go down relatively well with um with the Ireland supporters. But in terms of how the team are going to play this week, are, are Leinster a better side this time around than they were last year? Bear in mind, they won't have Sexton. And uh, while Ross Byrne has been excellent, he still isn't at the same level as Sexton. La Rochelle certainly seemed to be a stronger team than they were last year. And while they won it at the death, I don't think that many people thought that they were undeserving uh, of their victory. So uh, is the pendulum actually slightly in favour of, notwithstanding the fact that Leinster are favourites because they're home, has the pendulum slightly swung in favour of La Rochelle in terms of the last 12 months? No, I think it's more evenly balanced. I do think La Rochelle are better um, than they were last year. I think they're playing a slightly better style. They have a couple of different players in different positions. About half, they're far more confident. Carbarlo's on fire. Um, uh, Batia, pretty extraordinary, whatever position you want to put him into. Um uh, they look more assured. Also, having having won, um, they are. I don't think they're taking anything for granted. I think they are building on that idea, and they're on that crest of a wave. And it's pre- it's pretty interesting to watch. Um, again, when we we talked about that passion, that kind of old passion of monster that gets kind of dismissed at times, and it, but it can gel a whole community and that seems to be the case in La Rochelle which is pretty fantastic um, Leinster are a lot better than last year and um, they're a lot better in the physicality that they bring to the game I think the second rows are upping their game their back row is world class and Sheehan is a year older and phenomenal um, it comes back to that look we'll be talking about this until uh, until he fully retires. Um, but Leinster miss Johnny Sexton, you know, and um, uh, Ross Byrne has done, I think, extraordinarily well. I think he's had two or three ups and downs in the last two years. He's he's borne those incredibly well. I think you have to be impressed by the manner he's been written off and the manner in which he's come back and delivered Um He's the best ball striking 10 we have in the country by a country mile. He seems to put everything over at ease. Um, it's whether he can exert the amount of control on a, on a team um, who are going to be under pressure at, at, at rock time and mall time. So um, if he's under pressure, if he gets quick ball, there is an opportunity for him to unleash an awful lot from, from Leinster. If everything is slowed down an awful lot, um, it becomes harder. So, look, I think the the, the pressure for the, the management of this goes on Jemison Gibson Park. I think that becomes, he becomes far more important within this team. Um, 
But the forwards have to stack up. And I have to say, Leinster's forwards have been phenomenal this year. So, like, I can't call the game. That's 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 where I'm at. I think Leinster are marginal favourites because they're at home. But um, they're going to play against a team, one of the few teams that will really be able to outmuscle them. And yeah. if that happens, um, then La Rochelle could win. But... Um, yeah, I, I just—it's one of those—it's—it's—it's it's, it's rare you get you get to a, a final and say these are two teams that have got a different routes over the last few years, um, but they have bolstered all their weaknesses to get themselves to this moment of this time, and like that's—isn't that all you ever want for a final? Yeah, Keith, good stuff. Thanks a million for joining us this morning. Cheers. Cheers, gents. Keith Wood giving us thoughts on the Heineken Champions Cup final, which you can hear live on Off the Ball on uh, News Talk on Saturday. Uh, you'll also get it on uh, OTB Sports Radio. Uh, kickoff is at 4.45. You can join John Duggan and the rest of the crew from uh, 1 on Saturday. Uh, OTB AM with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back. Sorry, 2 on Saturday. Neon Night Edition is available now. A um, couple of quick comments for you. Uh, my favourite one so far was... Um, where's it gone? I was full on ready to support Leinster this weekend until all the Leinster fans started batching uncontrollably about everything and anything. So now I hope Raj and Larishel smack you again, says Richie. <laughs> it's split in the country, isn't it? I mean, that's how it should be. I, yeah. friend, a friend of mine was um, trying to get me to convince uh, Quinny to say I'm supporting Leinster at the weekend because it's good for Irish rugby. But it's not. It's good for Irish rugby that Munster beat Leinster at the weekend. Because the rivalry needs to exist yeah, yeah. to inspire everybody on. But the Munster fans shouldn't be supporting us this weekend. You just shouldn't. No. No, 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 no. no. That, doesn't, that, doesn't, that, that does not... And certainly the Leinster fans won't be up for Munster in the... No. In the, they, like, they, in the, they just won't. The argument I mean, doesn't stack up. I was making right, this point I'm last week. Not breaching any confidences here, but like... Every time one of my friends succeeds, a little piece of me dies. That's what Gore Vidal said. And he's right. Yeah, someone said to me last week that I, I should be supporting Leinster because... Because um, you live and work here and they, they, live made, and you, they made you home here, Shane. That's Jesus, come on, by. But how ridiculous is that? That's so oh. co- Massive Munster fans, say from Limerick or Cork or Tip or whatever, living in Dublin and working in Dublin should support Leinster against La Rochelle. I mean, do me a favour, like as Roy Keane would say. Ridiculous. There has to be a bit of partisanship in, in sport. It's, well, the, it's the nature of sport. Pointless, yeah. Fergus Kill says there was a colour clash Terry versus Armagh maybe not on close-ups but with five or six players milling around on a long shot it was very difficult to see who was who news coming through that one of the Armagh players was bitten um, and uh, it was missed by David Goff so the GA will deal with it it's in the uh, examiner today and they're, they make reference to a previous biting incident where nothing happened where a dub uh, was alleged to have bitten um, Paddy McBrearty but um, in his report at the time the uh, then Director General uh, Park Duffy was very critical of both camps because nobody would come forward and talk about it. This culture of like, oh, what happens on the pitch stays on the pitch. If you bite me, I'm not going to tell anybody afterwards. That has to stop. Well, I mean, that has to stop. If that's true. That's disgusting. I mean, biting someone on a on a sports pitch, no matter what the sport. There, you see all of the nipping going on. There's a lot of lot of that in Gaelic football at the moment. There's a lot of nipping. Yeah, and there was a booking for it at the weekend. Uh, Philly McMahon and BBC commentary was like, oh, he's just checking the body fat. But like, that's like. One of the most childish, nonsensical things you're ever going to see. It's like, mm. oh, you've done all this you're a real hard man there, aren't you? Nipping me like a baby, like a little baby. Literally, all the time spent in the gym and the strength and conditioning to be as, as physical as they can be on the pitch, and then they resort to nipping. Yeah, I, I actually, I would make a straight red card from now on. Yeah, well, you know, I would certainly stamp it out. Uh, right, 
Sorry, I should mention as well before we before we move on. Ronnie Sullivan signed book. I did promise this yesterday to someone. So in the comments of the the YouTube channel, I can I can legitimize that signature because I saw him do it. So signed by Ronnie, uh, his new book, Unbreakable, out now. Cal Finn on YouTube commented, favorite Ronnie moment after the seventh World Championship win in the Eurosports Studio with McManus, Jimmy White, and Radzi when the cameras go off and Ronnie just shows all his emotions in the 17 days, which really shows us how much he wanted that word title. He starts crying. This is the, it was in the new documentary. He uh, literally the cameras go off in Eurosport and he just starts bawling. It was amazing. Look it up on YouTube if you find it. So, Cal Finn, get in touch with me on, on Twitter or wherever and I'll get that signed copy out to you now. Time for us to talk about uh, the genius that is Sam Kerr and start to make the entire nation slightly worried about the fact that uh, we're going to face her in the World Cup. Uh, scoring for Chelsea at the weekend as they won the Women's FA Cup before a massive, massive crowd at Wembley Stadium. I'm delighted to say Emma Sanders, broadcast journalist with BBC Sport, is with us this morning to reflect on this. Emma, good morning to you. How are you? Good morning, I'm good, thanks. Hope you're well. It's uh, not breaking news, but um, Sam Kerr is devastating when she needs to be. Absolutely. I think, you know, we've heard Emma Hayes, her manager, say that she's the best striker in the world. And I think you you would find it hard to argue someone uh, against that because she just delivers in the big moments every single time. Uh, that was a sixth goal in, it, it, that was a goal in six consecutive cup finals for Chelsea, which I think is just an unbelievable stat and, yeah, she just needed one chance and, and she took it. It's the hallmark of a great striker, Emma, isn't it? Because you can be not involved and disassociated from a game and missing chances and just not getting the ball. And then all of a sudden the chance comes and she takes it. Yeah, because I think Manchester United were the better team in the first half. You know, they created more chances. Sam Kerr wasn't really in the game. At half time, you were wondering how Chelsea were going to get the ball to her. She makes those runs in behind and that's where she is so dangerous. And Manchester United weren't allowing Chelsea to to do that they were they were really stubborn at the back and then you know Emma Hayes made made a substitution brought on Pernil Harder brought on Sophie uh, Sophie Ingle in the middle um changed the system slightly and it just seemed to completely unlock that Manchester United defense and then suddenly Sam Kerr was being able to make these runs in behind and that was it and uh, you just felt at some point she was going to have a moment uh, and when it came um yeah there was absolutely no mistaking and uh, yeah the backflip came out trademark backflip celebration which i think um, everyone at Wembley was was hoping to see. Certainly, the the uh, the Blues fans were hoping to see. Anyway, she had texted her mate before the match, hadn't she? Saying, "Watch out for the backflip today." So she she knew she was going to score essentially. Yeah, absolutely. You know, she she just knew that on the big occasions she always has those moments, and I think that was something that everybody sort of going into the final was looking out for. It was how long really can Manchester United keep her at bay? Um, and yeah, obviously they they did well for seventy odd minutes. Um, but yeah, as soon as that moment came, you know, I, I, I wrote this in my match report, but you could already hear sort of the Chelsea fans. They were on their feet. They were, they were half cheering before she'd even touched the ball because there was just no chance that she was going to miss it from there. And, and yeah, I almost missed the bat flip. Um, have my head down, writing the, writing the information in. Uh, yeah, I almost missed it. But yeah, she, she knew it was coming. I think most people in, in Wembley knew it was coming as well. Emma Hayes' comments afterwards were, were very interesting, Emma, because she she kind of compared the, t- the styles of the two teams. She said this was a victory for grind um, and talked about how flexible her Chelsea team has become. Our team has become hybrid monsters, I think was the phrase. Like, what, is, what does she mean by that? Yeah, well, I think this season we've seen perhaps a different side to Chelsea than what we've seen before. Chelsea have obviously dominated English women's football. They've struggled in Europe um, until recent years where they've started to get into the latter stages. And I think by their progression in Europe, they've had to adapt their style slightly. So, whereas, you know, certainly in the WSL, they used to dominate in the ball and um, controlling teams. And then they've tried to adapt in Europe, where they're now a comfortable team out of possession as well. So, 
like having someone like Samka, they are playing a lot more direct where they might only have two, three chances in a game and they've just become really ruthless. Um, so they've now sort of taken that over across the whole season this year because of injuries to senior players. Samka has often been the only attacking player that they've got fit. Um, they've had some other big injuries at centre-back. So, yeah, they have had to sort of fight through games and grind out wins. Um, it's not always been pretty, but I think that was what Emma Hayes was addressing it. In, after the final was that actually her side have now found, found a way to adapt to certain situations um, certain formations and when players are missing they have other players who can come in rotate play slightly different roles but they're all very clear on what they need to do and that perhaps wasn't something that we saw two three years ago from this Chelsea side so it's a progression and uh, as I say Manchester United were arguably the better team across the 90 minutes but certainly as the game went on you felt Chelsea were coming into their own um, and it certainly wasn't a massive surprise the timing of the goal because they had just started to to cause some more problems. So yeah, it was. Uh, I think Emma Hay said it was the most memorable FA Cup final win that that she's had with Chelsea. Emma, speaking of progression, um, there was a, a record crowd for a domestic football match. Uh, um, we'd seen just the previous week, or maybe ten days ago, the the crowd for the Arsenal Wolfsburg game, and there's been. Uh, regularly across the course of the season record crowds surging towards the game and coming off the aftermath of the tournament that um, was so successfully hosted by England it does feel as if there's been a proper learning about how to build on something um, like the word legacy around sports tournaments is always you know, like look back in London and uh, what is London's tarnished legacy now for hosting the Olympic Games but for some reason this time there does seem to be a very clear correlation between what happened and what's happening now. Why do you think that is? First off, is that correct? Is it a legacy or has it been building anyway and the tournament was kind of incidental or, or what's your what's your assessment of that? And if it is true, why is that happening? Yeah, I, I do think it is true. I think the game was building anyway, but at nowhere near the acceleration or the level that it has post-Euros. So, um, yeah, I, I do agree. I do think it has had a massive impact and... I think there's several reasons for why they've managed to to be successful. And I think one of them has to go to the FA um, because they had obviously planned the tournament with the future in mind and they had been in communication and correspondence with, with all the clubs, certainly in the Women's Super League, but also um, with UEFA and other governing bodies around the world on how they can make sure that the Euros had a lasting impact. So... Um, you know, it's not often that you give praise to, to the Football Association, but I think certainly they deserve one on this time. Um, and likewise, the clubs themselves, I think, you know, they were well aware that they needed to capitalise in terms of marketing. They needed to invest. And it wasn't down to just one or two clubs. It needed to be a collective effort across the league. So if they wanted better broadcast deals, then they needed to, to show uh, the media, show the TV that, they were going to be investing in quality players. They were going to be recruiting the best players in the world. Um, so I think clubs certainly as well. Um, they improved their marketing and they improved their recruitment, their investment. And the players as well, because I think the players have taken a lot of things on their shoulders in terms of outside of football. And certainly you look, you look at the England squad and England captain Neil Williamson is a great example. She really strived in that role of, of responsibility. And, you know, it wasn't just about going on the pitch and playing football. To her, it meant a lot more. And I think she wasn't afraid to show that. And she spent a lot of time in the media, um, going around to grassroots football. Um, obviously, they spent time working with the government to try and get football in schools. 
So, yeah, I think it was a collective effort, really, and several reasons why. But certainly, you know, the success of England um, helped big time. Um, but, yeah, I think certainly the way that they capitalised on that is something that should be celebrated. Do you know, are there specific examples, and not to put you on the spot here, but um, what the FA actually did, what, what was part of their plan to make sure that they were able to unleash what has happened? Well, I think just in general, it was it was about one of their main goals was getting more people into stadiums. Um, so, you know, when you mentioned there the attendances, that was something that they'd set out before the tournament had started. It was one of their main goals that they wanted to achieve post-Euros. Um, so simple things like they had uh, members of the, of the FA going into clubs and um, sort of running workshops on how they can improve their marketing and their ticket sales. Um, they were in correlation with clubs around when they can host games at men's stadiums. So, for example, I know they worked uh, with Arsenal in terms of trying to build their regularity at the Emirates Stadium and Arsenal being a brilliant example to, to everyone, uh, certainly in the WSL. They played three WSL games there this season. They played every knockout round in the Champions League and obviously they reached the semi-finals uh, this year. And we've seen them host, you know, huge crowds. Obviously they, they now have the WSL record as well, uh, which was, which was um, made this season. So, you know, Arsenal was a great example of a club that wanted to grow that sustainably and the FA have sort of guided them through that. Um, and they've now recently announced that from next season, they'll be having five WSL games there next season. So that's up from three. Um, and again, if they can qualify for the Champions League, then all of the knockout stages will be played there. So, um, yeah, that would be one example, really. It was, it was just about sort of those workshops and getting certain personnel in, in specific areas uh, of expertise, really, to help help guide clubs through through that you know, sustainable pro- process, really. Yeah, because in, in like the history of world sport, it's a really brilliant example of what happens when you get all the stakeholders invested behind a plan and everybody kind of fully understands what the plan is. And then ultimately the upside, we don't know what the upside is, but we're starting to see it. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I think that's the really exciting thing is that it's not just, you know, it's not just one person driving this or one organisation driving this. As you say, it's everyone involved. It's the media, it's the fans, it's the players. Uh, it's the football associations, it's the clubs, um, and it's all a, a, a collective. And I think that's why it has been so successful because it isn't just down to one factor. It's down to several things and several people working together. And that needs to carry on. You know, that, that can't stop. I think that's something as well that obviously the FA are keen on doing. Um, they're about to sort of hand over the WSL to a new company, which we were, we were told yesterday would be um, August 2024 that they're eyeing that up. So, that's going to be the next stage. And at the moment, it's, you know, it's about members of the PFA, uh, members of clubs, um, the FA board in conversation with, with a sort of CEO working group on how they can, they can take that next step and ensure that the legacy of the Euros isn't just a one year thing or a two year thing, that it actually becomes, you know, a 10, 10 to 20 year thing and it, and it continues. Um, I know you have the finger on the pulse when it comes to the the transfer market. Um, we we do a lot of talking about Megan Campbell on this show, not just about her long throw-ins, but we're curious to see where her where her future lies, whether it's at Liverpool or beyond. Do you have any insight as to where Megan Campbell might be playing her football next season? Yeah, well, as far as my understanding, it, it won't be at Liverpool um, unless anything dramatically changes overnight. You know, she was in conversations with Liverpool for for several months. I think she was quite keen to extend her contract there and. And uh, yeah, my understanding is uh, last week those those talks broke down. So um, I'm expecting her to leave the club this summer. Where to? 
we're not too sure yet. Um, I know Brighton had showed interest earlier in the season, but, um, you know, they've sort of directed their attention to targets. Now, short of interest, certainly she proved she was very, very effective in, in the Women's Championship last season. Um, maybe maybe her age might might put her off a couple of WSL clubs, but I think certainly there'll they'll be suitors there. Um, so, yeah, I think she'll... Uh, it would, as I say, I don't think it, it will be at Liverpool, but I think if she was to stay in the WSL, I don't think that would come as a surprise to anyone. Emma, we leave it there. Good stuff. Thanks a million for joining us. Cheers. Thank you. It's Emma Sanders there giving us some thoughts on the uh, situation uh, in the WSL. And also, I, I think there's significant lessons for the FAI to learn from the boom in underage figures uh, in particular. Um, and maybe they could start working on those attendances as well because when we were talking with Vinnie, Cathy was putting into our, our group chat that um, the WS, the National Women's League here figures for attendances haven't seen a boost since qualification or a significant boost. Um, so it's definitely worth just teasing out why that might be or what could happen to try and uh, get people to come to the games and then to be that rolling momentum that Vinnie was talking about earlier on with regards to the men's game particularly in Tala. And just to let you know as well, the latest episode of Koi Gig is available now, should be now, uh, wherever you get your podcasts. And the best place, of course, is the OTB Sports app. Uh, right, a reminder that we are live every morning with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shaver, your money back. Neon Night Edition is available now. Um, Pascal Jacobs says, the best thing about the current URC format is that it can't be taken for granted with only half the teams making Champions Cup. Everyone's taking it more seriously the last two seasons. Yeah, and look, in fairness, um, you probably shouldn't be able to make the final by not playing your strongest team in the semi-final. Mm. That's something that the league needs to decide that if they want the winner of the Heideken Cup to come from the URC, then they need to fix the scheduling so that the season is fixed in a way where Leinster could have played their best team, played their best team and then gone into a Champions Cup final. Now, if that had been the URC final, would they have played their full team the week before? I don't know. So maybe, maybe that's not an answer to it either. Yeah, it certainly would have diluted. Like, say, for example, Man City could play a second string, completely second string team against Real Madrid tomorrow night and still make a Champions League final. It definitely dilutes the competition. So I think, yeah, your point about it being good for rugby and Irish rugby, Munster winning, stands, I think. Uh, question for Shane. Which is a better sport, tennis or rugby? It's a very random question. Do you mean, do you mean a question for Shane or do you mean a question for Colm? Who's our uh, tennis man? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably for Colin. Do you have a view? Both fantastic sports. One's individual, one's team. I mean, can't really compare them. <laughs> so many to choose from. One use so many to choose from. One use a racket. I don't know. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a great question for Colin Buhig. I think we'll, we'll get him on tomorrow morning and get his thoughts on that. Uh, Peter M wants to know: Would it be good for Irish rugby if we have a coach with a top fourteen and two European cups in two years? If he comes back, how good would Ireland be down the line? with Raj as coach and his winning mentality. Yeah, of course. Of course it would be great for us to have a coach with that. But it might be better for us to have, you know, the 23 members of the squad and Leo Cullen to have won one as well. So there's a bit of competition. As a biased Leinster fan, then obviously I want Leinster to win this weekend. That's fair. Yeah, That's yeah. how it should be. Yeah, you're from Kildare. Your coach you're going to support, support Kildare. I'd be pretty happy if... Support Leinster. I'd be pretty happy for Raj if he was winning against anybody else. I'd be absolutely thrilled for him. I was, you know, thrilled for him to get this far. But no further. <laughs> no more. Open top bus in La Rochelle next week, lads. Look, the La Rochelle story is absolutely it's bonkers. Mad. Yeah. Population of 75,000 in La Rochelle. Obviously, there's a big urban area around it, but it still doesn't swell to anything like a million, you know? So mm. this is this is David versus Goliath in terms of uh, where they come from. 
But uh, obviously La Rochelle have a decent budget, turns out, to sign some world-class players. Mm. And they've got a world-class coach. And it's really great for Ireland that we have a world-class coach. And you'd love to see a lot of other Irish coaches going off and making their way around the world. Uh, you know, And there are, there are plenty of them that are beginning to do it. Are, have you seen the Carlos Tevez story? No. Ah, it's brilliant. Um, so Tevez was explaining why. We, I always wondered why Carlos Tevez at you know, City and United and West Ham, he could never speak uh, or communicate to the players in English or the other coaches in English. And he says, I have an uncle who played in River Plate. He's the only River supporter in my family. He played in the reserve team. And when he was going to make his debut at the first team, he got called up to fight in the Falklands War. And he talked about uh, in the aftermath, suffering from alcoholism and that marking Carlos Tevez himself a lot the impact he saw the Falklands War on his uncle so he said from a, from a cultural reason he said the seven years I spent in England were for me okay I'm here for work but I'm not getting used to English, English culture everything has a reason very few people know this story today I can tell it you want to speak to me then you learn Spanish because I'm not going to learn English fascinating to hear that insight because I always wondered why Carlos Tevez didn't learn English I was like why what? he's seven years in England I mean surely he can speak English on a point of principle yeah so there you go he, he did it for a reason uh, right we'll come back to that story a little bit later on Two minutes past nine. I'm delighted to say we have Colm O'Rourke, the Mead football manager, with us. Uh, Colm, good morning, Jay. How are you? Good morning. I'm just great. A bit easier uh, talking in the aftermath of a victory, I suspect, than it is after um, some defeat. So uh, I guess it's just like this is the other side of being a manager. You get to ease into the week a bit. Yes, uh, you have to, like Kipling, treat those two imposters just the same. Victory and defeat. With respect, Kipling never had to go up against, um, you know, the Division 2 in the Allianz Football Dublin. League. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's, uh, I think, you know, we were we, we were slated for getting our defeat at the hands of Dublin and Derry and the tactics and the open defence. It just shows, like, if you have good players, uh, I think the systems are secondary. You know, good players always overcome any opposition defence. And we saw that from both Derry and Dublin at the weekend. What what's your uh, feeling now on what it's like to be a manager versus what you thought it was going to be? Well, I've been involved uh, during in, in management at school level for forty years at club level, uh, involved with Simon's Town and Screen, and uh, involved in championship wins with both clubs at senior level. So I've seen a lot of it, but it definitely is different. It's more intense. It's more time consuming. But it's really, it's basically the same insofar as you're dealing with players and dealing with young people, which I always found interesting and I learn a lot from them. I hope they learn something from me. We saw the difficulty some counties had, Column of, of getting a manager uh, during the summer, like it dragged on for months and months, some of these processes. And in my head, I guess a lot of it went, went down to the, the focus and the attention on the intercounty job. As you say, you can, you can have a club job and be somewhat under the radar, except for in your local area, but there must be a, a pressure and, and social media backlash is another aspect of that as well that, that comes with the territory, unfortunately, of intercounty management. Yeah, there is a, a lot of that. There's a lot of focus, and particularly in Mead, I think when a lot of people would uh, wonder what's gone wrong. It's not a job I really sought. In the end, I had my arm twisted. I didn't apply for it or anything like that. But uh, uh, the social media side, maybe I'm sort of got a bit old for that, and I, I still uh, lean on old-fashioned values that if I want to hear somebody's opinion, I'll probably call them or talk to them in person, and I'm not that... Uh, very much into social media. I'm not on Twitter, not on any of these things. You know, for for me, the people that count 
are the people that are my friends. I'm not really that pushed about the opinions of others who may wish to castigate me or any of the people involved or the players. Uh, I, I don't sort of get involved in that sort of thing. The players do, though, right? I presume they do. I, I, it's something I don't speak to them very much about. They obviously come from a different generation. And uh, uh, like there are very few people who aren't affected by severe negative criticism. And I presume our players are like that as well. But uh, again, what we have tried to do is to build resilience and to try and get them to, to look at what's going on within their own lives and to grow as people and not to pass too rem- much remarks on what's going outside uh, th- their inner circle. Are you are you in this now for the long haul, now that you've, you're in it, you're in it? I, I guess it would have been easy, or certainly um, I don't think anybody would have blamed you if you had had an experience of it and decided, like, actually, you know what, I'm going to do this year and we'll revisit at the end. But the way you're talking recently about your team being young and building resilience, like, you don't you don't show the fruits of that resilience in three months or six months. That takes that takes time to build a manifest. Yes, that's absolutely right. Uh, I suppose, like, when I was studying economics long ago at college, uh, pains had a theory in the long run, we're all dead. So... Uh, <laughs> The long haul for me is, I don't know, maybe three years to see how this would work. We definitely have decided to go with a young, uh, inexperienced team, six uh, debutants against Offaly for a first championship match, three more last weekend. I think the 12 of the team against Offaly had played uh, eight or nine championship matches or less. So it's very much a new team. Would like to give them a chance to grow and develop. I do have confidence in them. The whole management team have confidence in them. But uh, the long haul, maybe a few years. I'm not really at an age where, you know, I'm not in my 30s or 40s or 50s where I could say, you know, it's somebody like Kieran McGaney or, or John Kiley or Brian Cody or Sean Boylan or somebody like that that I'm going to be around for years. I do believe that if we're not able to see some real progress within a few years then it's not working uh, and it might be time to let somebody else have a go With that in mind then I suppose when you, you were saying that um, in a way systems are secondary to the players you have I guess that that's kind of you're, you're in a period where you're building the players and ultimately I'm wondering will we actually see what your desired full system is until maybe the middle of next year I, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not uh, wishing away the future or anything but actually if, you, if you're still working out the quality of those players that you have, you haven't fully implemented your game plan around that yet. Uh, well, we have worked very hard on a defensive structure right from the very beginning. And uh, obviously it depends on the players. And it has taken six months to get to know a lot of the players. And obviously we would be in a much stronger position next year insofar as I would say that we'd know 90% of the panel probably before we started, whereas we probably only knew 30 or 40% of it at this stage that are uh, coming up to Christmas this year. But, uh, uh, you know, some people may have this sort of idea, old-fashioned idea, that I want to try and go back to the 1970s and 1980s to have a sort of long kicking game and that uh, it's a sort of a haven't kept up with the times. Anybody who's playing football now realises that they have to have extra defenders, that they have to have a a very refined system in place. Yet, when you look at the likes of Dublin last Sunday, 
Uh, I was in Crow Park and they still bring a huge element of long kicking to their game, which is very effective. But it's also balanced out with a very strong defensive system. So we're trying to build something for that. I'm not naive enough. I've uh, been involved with playing sweepers at club level for many years when we won the championship here with Simon Stan. So we want to try and get something that everybody's comfortable and that they're able to do. You mentioned you were at that match, Colm, um, an 18th Leinster crown in 19 seasons for Dublin, 13th in a row. I mean, if you'd said at the start of the, the year that the, the Leinster final would finish five goals and 21 points to 15 points, there'd be a lot of rolled eyes. And, and Desi Farrell's comments after the match were, were interesting enough. He says it's probably time to have a proper review of the competition and see who benefits from these big wins, the big discrepancies between teams. Is there a better mixture? I don't know if you had any views on, on Desi's comments and, and on the future of the Leinster Championship, I suppose, in general. Yeah, well, uh, like I think Desi Farrell said quite correctly that uh, the real competition starts now. And uh, like Dublin, an exceptional team, I felt sorry for Loud. Like they're coming up against some of the best players I have ever seen in the 50 odd years that I've been going to inter county football. But uh, like the the Leinster uh, Championship is dead. And that's off, that that can be put down to Mead's own competitiveness too, because. in the 80s and 90s, it often was uh, a two-team championship at that stage. And then, of course, Kildare and Leash and Westmead came in with wins at different times. But the absence of, of a competitive Mead has certainly been a, a huge disadvantage to the Leicester Championship. And the way the structure runs now, like all provincial championships are not really of any great importance anymore. Uh, as Desi Farrell did say, the real competition starts now with the groups of four. And to me, the whole thing is is a bit of a farce going from a league structure to a championship structure, back to a league structure with the rounds of four, and then on to another championship structure. Uh, I think it's very demanding of players. This restricted season, the split season, is certainly good for clubs. But if you're an inter-county player, there is no split season and uh, I, I see huge demands on players, a lot of injuries. To win the All-Ireland, a team may have to win 17 or 18 competitive matches during the year. I think it's too much. I think that uh, the player going back to his club after this will be spun out. And it just, me, uh, it just uh, I have the height of respect for somebody like Conor Glass who has gone from county to club and back to county and is a star man. It's just a wonderful player to be able to do it. But I think there are very few Connor Glasses. I think a lot of county players after the season is over now are going to need a long break. It, it, to, as a counter argument to that and almost to play devil's advocate, do players maybe prefer playing matches to, to slogging out in training? Oh, yeah, there's absolutely no doubt about that. But there's a limit to it. You know, fellas still have to get up on Monday and go to work or go to college and things like that. And there's both physical and mental demands on them. So if you're with a, a successful club, it means a, a more or less 12-month season, and that's 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 too demanding. We did want to ask you about um, comments from, from Donald Cusick as well. The Talton Cup kicked off the weekend, as you, as Jer mentioned, 119 <laughs> to 11-point win. <laughs> you know yes. where I'm going with this, but uh, he, he did mention the Talton Cup by name. Um, so he said it's a sort of Gaelic football grand national for disappointed also runs. Um What did you make of Don Logue's comments? Oh, well, I, I made the comment that I wouldn't pass too much remarks on that. Like, imagine me 
making comments like that about the Christy Ring or Nicky Rackard or Laurie Marcup. Like, I see the Mead hurlers that played before us on Saturday and they're out in Dungani training and putting in similar effort to us. I wouldn't denigrate or run down a second-tier hurling competition or a third-tier hurling competition. And, you know, there there is a sort of... Uh, a type of sort of elitist snobbery with some hurling people who think that hurling is the greatest game on earth and I think that it should be shown on television and promoted. I don't know where this comes from, you know. Uh, people like that are better off if they, instead of having rehearsed rants on radio and television, be better off down in their club doing a bit of work at juvenile level. Uh, hurling is a wonderful game and there's no doubt about it. As a spectacle, it's fantastic. So is Gaelic football. Like, look at the Ulster final and the tension of it last Sunday. So is basketball. So is rugby. Like, La Rochelle and Leinster on Saturday, I'm sure, will be wonderful. The World Cup final between France and Argentina or tomorrow tomorrow night, Man City and Real Madrid and uh, baseball and basketball. I love all those sports and cricket as well. Who's to decide who's the greatest game? I wonder who's the judge of that. Maybe golf is the greatest game of all. It can be played by anybody anywhere in the world almost from 9 to 90, and you can play at, at any level, and the handicap system means that uh, everybody is equal. So I'm not into this sort of making comments about other sports. Everybody deserves equal respect. Uh, the Tulsian Cup uh, is, is a flawed competition, but it is a great competition for, for those who haven't got into the All-Ireland. But there are very many flaws in it. Uh, not, notwithstanding the flaws and, and how many teams are actually going to make it and how many games we have to go through to get to the point where um, we essentially throw out five of the um, uh, 16 who are left the win that you had at the weekend must have been a massive release of pent up emotion for your crew it's been a while since you've actually had a victory and the the uh, program that the team took after the Offaly game um, what was that dressing room like for you guys afterwards? Oh, it was a very happy dressing room, but I, I don't know. I've been I've been lucky insofar. We have a very committed group of players, and after the Offaly game, like they they all stuck at it, and we're back at training within the week. So it's been fortunate in that regard that I have been lucky to be involved with a very very good group. But it's nice to see smiles on people's faces after a game, and they needed a bit of confidence, and and they worked hard and. Uh, Things turned out well for them, but uh, they worked hard for it, so they got what they deserved. Yeah, you can see things turn around pretty quickly for teams. I, I two last quick things I wanted to talk to you about. You, you obviously would have been an interested observer watching the the GA Go situation. Uh, what what was your instinct about that? Was it like because I think the football crowd are going to realise over the next couple of weeks that oh, it wasn't just the hurting crowd who are missing all the good games. Actually, yeah, we're going to miss them too. What what's your instinct about that whole thing? I'm old enough to go back to us and to remember when there was very little football and hurling on television and now we've come to a stage where some people think they should be able to see everything. I don't see that as a big issue at all. Uh, I think it's a non-event. Like if somebody wants to pay 79 quid or whatever it is and have access to every game, I think that's good value. Like it's not too many people are were able to see all these big hurling matches a few years ago anyway. So I don't know where this clamour is coming from to, that everything should be put free to air. If there's three or four matches on at the weekend, I think that's sufficient coverage. And of course, the more games are on television, the more it hits local club games as well. So you have to take into account that side of it as well. 
I don't see it as a, a big issue. I maybe those who are uh, doing the, the scheduling for GEA go did pull a fast one and decide that you know they put on a few very attractive matches on a paywall. Maybe that was done, but uh, like the, for years and years there've been big games with nobody that nobody could see. And just because they turned out to be brilliant games, this doesn't mean that they should be automatically free to air. There's been a lot of very poor Munster Championship matches and poor games everywhere. You can't just uh, decide in advance we're going to show a game just because we think it's going to be a classic. The last thing was um, the other two thirds of the Holy Trinity, Splan and Brawley, have both recently talked about how the kind of joy had gone out of being a pundit. Was that your experience too? A little bit. Uh, I, I think it has become a little bit sanitised and uh, I, I think that you need somebody to bring a bit of colour and wit and enthusiasm and maybe, you know, I, I always thought that you needed to give an opinion that people sitting at home would say, well, I think he's a bloody idiot or I agree with that or something, but not to give something that everybody else could see. So... I think Mr. Brawley is a big loss to television and sort and Pants Milan as well. I think they're a loss insofar as uh, they give fairly forthright uh, uh, comments and people had an opportunity to agree or disagree with them. But like if everybody agrees with something and we all say the same thing, it's a pretty boring type of game and boring life in general. Fair enough. Colm, enjoy the rest of the summer. Thanks a million for joining us. Thank you. Bye-bye. Colm O'Rourke giving his thoughts there on um, the Talton Cup and a lot of other stuff. Fascinating. Yeah, fascinating. Um, that elitism in, in hurling is a, is a question that... It, it'll rile up hurling people, of course, but um, a lot of Gaelic football people will agree. I, like, but I, I don't see why we always pit the two sports against each other. But... As you say, over the next couple of weeks, as we have Mayo, Kerry, Galway, Tyrone, these matches that are unbelievable viewing and yet they're going to be behind a paywall people are going to realise that pretty sharpish uh, that they can't just turn on their tellies and, and watch it so that's going to be fascinating um, but yeah some really really interesting comments there and by the way in the Tatton Cup Meath and Down are on schedule for a pretty heavyweight clash at the end of their group phase as well so the winner of that game you'd imagine if, if results go the way that you expect Meath and Down the winner will, will progress straight through to the to the next phase so that's a big one Alright, it's uh, 20 minutes past 9 this morning it's uh, it's time for Tommy Rooney's power rankings So many critics these pundits Generally speaking I'd be a fan of off the ball Exactly and like Tommy knows his football obviously listening to football at the odd time and I was looking at the power rankings and I thought that Jesus Owen must still be feeling the effects of these mushrooms but They just dismiss you like you, you know you have nothing to do with the bloody occasion Tommy, good morning to you Morning lads It's the Mead Power Hour That's what we're doing well, listen 98 days it took us to win a match but it's good to be back there you go there you go it won't uh, take much to get the, the juices flowing again in me I'll tell you that much no no and that's that's the whole point of the, the summer I think in fairness Andy McEntee had always talked about how you know you go out of the uh, Leinster Championship and then you go out of the qualifiers and your season's over mm-hmm. you don't even get the chance to train on and that's yep. when you start to see you know the, the in racing parlance the two year olds the progressive two year olds yeah. come through um, so something Go on. Meet at a very meet at a couple of very frustrating summers around um sixteen, seventeen, where they'd lose to Dublin and then lose by a point to Donegal and Tyrone in the qualifiers 
in the first or second round and that's your year over and there's no chance of making progress so um, hopefully and Colin spoke about it there some of the young players that are getting their opportunity this year it is a very young team there's a lot of excitement in Mead around some of the young lads and uh, you know Conor Gray made his debut at the weekend still under 20 he's a monster of a lad in midfield kicked a great point Jack Flynn as well has played a couple of games Sean Coffey was probably Mead's finest performance at wing back he's come in under the radar so Aaron Lynch as well got 1-3 in his debut. The Talchon Cup, I had said it a couple of weeks ago, it's going to be a good thing for me to win a couple of games and, you know, these players to get a bit of confidence because um, there are very good footballers there. OK, we did, we do have to talk about, are there two power rankings now, <laughs> given that there are two separate competitions? You you said at the start of the year, the power rankings, they'll sort themselves out as the summer goes on. Yeah, well, look, we leave this up for the discussion and debate. I tried to... I tried to separate them into two, but I couldn't because I feel like some teams are in the All-Ireland series but aren't in the top 16 in the country. But if there's a, a public um, push to separate them into two, we can do that. I don't think we should. Maybe we should. Would I get through slide four quickly? Go for it. Okay, so we've a, a good few movement here, right? So Tipperary are down to 31st after losing to Mead at the weekend. Tip and London are the only two teams in the country who haven't won that yet this year. New York have slipped back four places. They were bombed into 26th place. They've gone back to 30th. The teams around them are going to play another two games before they play again. Um, Wexford have moved up. They're quietly having a good year. Uh, they got close to Leash and Leinster. They got a great draw against Fermanagh at the weekend. Carlo had the win at the Italian Cup this weekend in round one. They turned over Wicklow, kicked six of the last... Uh, five scores to win by a point they overturned an eight point defeat that they had suffered in Leinster three weeks beforehand Leitrim probably lucky not to slide but the teams around them have all moved up uh, they're in 27th they were close to Antrim in the first half last week Antrim pulled away Andy McIntyre's Antrim are having a good year this year they were very unlucky in the league they won by nine points Longford 26th they didn't win but they were unlucky against a good Limerick team and they lost by a point in the Talchon Cup I think it's coming for Paddy Christie's side moving on to the next slide and the only change here is Fermanagh sliding back and Sligo moving forward um, Sligo are into 20th place Fermanagh in 21st the Sligo in the 20s run by God, it's been unbelievable. But none of the players are in Tony McEntee's team. None of them have played yet for Tony McEntee's side. So there is a lot of room for growth in the Sligo team. Um, he came in for a little bit of criticism for his setup against Galway. He didn't start Patrick O'Connor, who's one of the you know most informed forwards in the, the especially Division 4 and, and the early rounds of Connacht. So maybe we'll see the real Sligo over the next couple of weeks and maybe they can pick up a win and get into the preliminary rounds but they're the lowest ranked team in these power rankings in the All-Ireland series uh, Offaly, Mead and Cavan got the job done this weekend same as down none of them have moved um, so that is where they're at moving on to our next slide slide 3 and the only change here is that Kildare have moved forward sorry down, down are in this right even though they're in the down top are 15th top. They're down the only ones in the country. Yeah. Down are the only team who are in the top sixteen who are in the Talton Cup, and so therefore you expect Down to win the Talton Cup. I have Down as favourites in the Talton Cup. Okay. I do. And if they yeah. if they do that, you can say they are better than Westmeath. Perhaps if Westmeath lose all their games, or well, let's wait and see. But um, yeah, I think uh, I think we're going to see that over the round robin. You know, we're going to see that. Uh, there's probably you know we're, we're so many matches now to eliminate four teams. We'll see. If every team gets a win, I'm not sure they will. So um, there's going to be no dead rubbers, which is the only good thing, but it's a lot of games to eliminate four teams. Um, Kildare, they're moving forward by virtue of their Dublin performance as much as that under 20 success. It'll be very interesting to see how many of Brian Flanagan's team get 
called in or even get a start immediately. We saw Conor Gray get a start for Meath straight away. Shane Farrell potentially is the is the one. Uh, physically, he looks like he's got it. He's got all the football in the world and he's really impressed under 20 level under the last three years. Kildare, like two All-Ireland under 20 successes in five years is so positive. I beat the got a great last team. year. Yeah. Yeah, and finalists actually got a great tune out of the, the, the team with Jimmy Hyland and Paddy Woodgate and Aaron O'Neill have come through in that team and a couple of other lads, Archibald as well. Let's see what they get out of this team. Like the footballers are wrinkled there. It felt like it was something off the field or mentally that was wrong with them earlier in the year. They were just being easy to bet, easy to beat, but they turned it around. They really did turn it around and they've proven that they're Dublin find it hard to beat them. Whatever they're doing defensively, the Dubs are struggling. Maybe the Dubs are a little bit off colour that day, but Kildare deserve credit. Wow. And I think Kildare are going in under a radar now. Well, you say, you say they find them hard to beat them. Three out of four times they find them hard to beat them. The other time they scored yeah, five goals. Both by a point. Yeah, true, yeah, you're right. <laughs> but um, some, they've cracked something. They've on, cracked something. On the 20s nice thing. Sorry, Tommy, to interrupt you. On, mm. the, on the 20s thing, like we, Tony McEntee on the show last week, and he was basically saying off the Sligo under 20s players, He's going to essentially leave them off, let them enjoy the time after the championship, and probably, probably not call them up to the senior panel. And um, yeah. curious to see whether Kildare follow a similar pattern because it'd be great to get them into the senior setup. Well, I think because they're not under twenty ones, that extra year makes such a big difference. There's not that many of last year's beaten finalists in from the under twenty mm. squad who've made it through just yet. They're just they're they're holding them back and trying to create depth. I think is is yeah. the long term. You know, they're not thinking just short term trying to win something this year. But I think I think when you look at it now it is like the Meads defeat the Offaly, which we won't get too big into, but like Mead returned over six times in the tackle against Offaly in the first half that day. They were a, a young team, a light team, and Offaly were wily, they were smart. We've seen how Offaly have, have done so well in the last couple of weeks as well. Like the two lads that have done well for me that have come in especially are Conor Gray and Jack Flynn and they're monsters they're huge men in and around the middle they're only 20 and 21 but they are absolutely massive and physically they can compete I think that is just one of the big things you know Sligo have uh, some superb footballers there but I, I think McEntee I can understand that reluctance they, was, they want to get a bit more into the bodies Yeah, it's such a physical game at the minute it's interesting listening to uh, Paddy Andrews talking to you a couple of weeks ago it might have been a couple of weeks ago it might have been last week he was saying that you know players don't really burst through on the scene anymore and my initial one was oh what about Con?" and then mm-hmm. he, as if he was listening to me he was like Con was around with us for a couple of years before he actually so yeah. he was he was doing the training and I think um, John Small was fairly similar like Training and training, I remember and training for in. years, and then bursting out of nowhere, we think. But actually, he's been with the team for two, three seasons. I uh, I played freshers football in DCU with a very talented team. I was say number twenty four in a panel of twenty six, and uh, John Small was our captain that year alongside Tom Flynn, who was the under twenty one player of the year. And I just remember Smalley disappearing around December, and we just we never saw him. <laughs> Next thing comes back again towards the end of January, and we'd heard that he'd been in uh, with the Dubs over that winter and um, at the time it would have been Gavin's first year it would have been no it would have been Gilroy's it would have been Gilroy's first year I think so yeah it would have been uh, doing a lot of work quietly in the background um, building them up getting them ready and like John Small didn't become a regular until Gavin's first year um, and then really settled into who he is in around 2016 so like like John Fogarty is a great piece in the boys in 93 and those lads that all came together like it's a freak that Dublin have McCaffrey Mannion Kilkenny, um, Fenton, and I've managed to forget somebody there. Small. small, like all from the same age group. But it took them all different times to settle. Like Fenton didn't play minor. 
Uh, Mannion had, uh, and McCaffrey were freaks. They had the speed. Kilkenny was just an awesome player at that age. And Fenton obviously just grew into himself as the years went on. And like they, they've never been beaten together when they've been on the field together. So not every generation of footballer can come through at the same time, at the same speed. Like David Clifford, when he, we spoke to him a couple of weeks ago in the football pod, okay, he was very interesting. He spoke about learning about decision-making. He can't be four from eight. He needs to be seven from eight when he's shooting. But the physicality was the big thing as well for him to come in. And David Clifford is a, a big man. He was, yeah. Know. He was. I mean, if, if, if he's saying that, like a lot of yeah. a lot of these other kids coming through, you know, they will, it will be 23, 24 before they uh, are ready to make it. So anyway, Westmead 16, down 15, Cork down yeah. one to 14. Calera 13th, Louder 12th and Calera 11th. These two haven't moved in a long time. They were both beaten well in their provincial finals. They both scored 15 points. They, they illustrated some of the positives that they've shown uh, tr- that their teams have over the last couple of years. But obviously the, the gulf in class between the very best in the game at the minute and those teams are just so evident. But Clare and Loud are two teams that are maximising what they have at the moment. Donegal and Tent, they haven't moved like Claire and Donegal are going into this game and Ennis at the weekend. Genuinely, I said it on the pod this week and the lads thought I was I was, you know, uh trying to be cute. Donegal have a free shot this weekend. Donegal are coming into this game, nobody's giving them a hope in hell. No. All you need is one win to get through in the round robin. And it is a vital game for both Claire and Donegal. It's in Ennis, which gives the you know, a, a huge um positive for Clare but like this game is gonna be so, so tight at the weekend. And likewise with Sligo Claire, that game on Sunday, neither game is gonna get much um, credence over the next couple of days we're going to be talking about Kerry Mayo and Galway Tyrone but the, both of those games are going to be very close they're actually the biggest games of the weekend Yeah, I think they could be they're the ones yeah. with the jeopardy in it like yeah. um, okay uh, my my prediction my homer prediction is that Kildare are going to finish top of this uh, page by the end of the season that Donegal Ooh. will be down to like down below down in Westmeath that they'll be 15th okay. or 16th that's my Shame, wild prediction. Well, Monaghan are sitting there in a group with, with the two teams behind them on your power rankings, Tommy, Donegal, Clare, and you've got yeah, Derry as well. Who, who would you expect uh, between those two beating finalists of the weekend, Louth and Clare, just like to have a chance of progressing? Louth are in a group with Kerry, Mayo, Cork, mm. and as I say, Clare in that group with Donegal. The mini Ulster, yeah, Donegal, Monaghan, th- Derry. Yeah, I think, I think Louth's group is tougher. Um, but like again it comes down to that Cork game all you need is one win to get through to a preliminary mm. quarterfinal and then you have a chance to get into a quarterfinal and that is where these teams want to get to Clare are in a mini Ulster as you said I think they're going to relish it but it's again those games are going to be so tight but like preliminary quarterfinals the team who finishes second in their divisions are going to have home advantage against the teams mm-hmm. who finished third in other divisions that's a huge yeah. advantage it is a big advantage, but like so much can happen in these groups. Like a draw, a win is going to like swing the balance so much. Look, at, I it's, understand it's that, the it's argument. Not, it's not that big a deal. Like you know, Castlebar isn't amazing always. Uh, like but having a home match in order to get to an All Ireland quarter final, that's a pretty big carrot. I, I think that these teams are so evenly balanced that um, look, home advantage is obviously worth a couple of points. Don't, don't get me wrong, but I don't think it's the end of your season if you finish third. You could easily flip it against a team, you know. Yeah. Anyway, let's move on because we've got to get to the... Sh- go on. Shane's point, in fairness, if the top four go through as the top four, as we'd expect, the four provincial winners, Shane's point about the next date being so close to each other is very true. They are all so close to each other. Mm. Some are in good form, some aren't. But they are very close to each other in terms of the quality on paper. Okay, top eight. There's been a couple of movements here. Roscommon have slid back to eight. Um, Tyrone have slid back to seventh. Armagh despite losing again have moved forward to sixth going to be accused of an Armagh bias here but they got so much right at the weekend 
so much right and they're going to be kicking themselves and you know I, I mentioned Kieran McGinney sliding doors moments and Jerry you'll be well aware of them as Claire boss like so close on so many occasions to so many big days and likewise again a penalty shootout killing them like extra time they had it normal time they even could have snuck it it looked like they had time to run to perfection Mayo stood back to fifth Derry like what a performance like in fairness like Shane McGuigan is the man. Glanner Glass said it after the weekend. Shane McGuigan, in my opinion, is the person who pulled Derry over the line at the weekend. And we questioned at the start of the year, did Derry have enough? Had they done enough to progress from the team that we saw last year? Well, McGuigan has brought his game on tenfold. Brendan Rodgers' movement into midfield has made a massive difference. Owen McAvoy's emergence as one of the best defenders in the game at the minute. Mm. Like the job that he did on Mernon and Turbot swapping with Chrissy McKay throughout that game. And even like Lachlan Murray who we were looking at not getting a chance to the under 20s because of that rule at the minute. He comes in and he scores a clutch point with a minute to go. He does his job and finishes it off. So look, I think Derry deserved to be in fourth place. Um, winning back-to-back ulcers is, is an incredible feat. So they're there. The dubs Jared, they haven't moved. They're still in third place. Still behind Galway. Galway in second. And Kerry are in first. And I am putting it on the record right now. Galway are my favourites this year for the All-Ireland. Jesus, Tommy. Where did that come from? Yeah, I just I just really like what I'm seeing from Galway. Well, hang on. This is your power rankings. You then need to make them number one. You need to have the courage to screw no, your conviction the, the, to the wall. They're your favourites. Okay, maybe I maybe I framed that wrong. I think Galway are in the best position. Like being in first place in June when there's six, seven games to go isn't necessarily the best place to be. I just think what Galway have shown this year, and I understand what you're saying about Dublin, and I think you've made a compelling case. And I think you could look like the smartest man in the country come the start of August. But I hadn't even added Cluxton back into the team. I, mean, I know they hadn't. <laughs> and we we got there were some scary signs at the weekend, but there was also some signs that they're not. No, it's a fair they're, just, they're a different Dublin. They're a different Dublin than the Dubs we saw winning five in a row. So they're a very different team. Is it, but a go-away for me, I've just, they've just grown and they've come on leaps and bounds from last year. Is it a strength and depth, Tommy, with Galway? Because you, have to, you can't win in All-Ireland without strength and depth and maybe that was what was missing last year. It's, it's the, the conviction I'm seeing with them. It's the, like I mentioned, some of the improvements Derry made last year. Like, like Matty Tierney needs to show it again, right? Mm-hmm. And, we need to see it from Matty Tierney. And everybody will talk about Shane Walsh needing to, you know, double down and show us what he has consistently. We we haven't seen them click altogether yet. And I just think we're starting to see glimpses of Ian Burke. And, you know, his performance against Roscommon was awesome. He kicked points the last day, showed he could do that. Um, Conroy was, was obviously missing the last day. I just think if we get this full go-away team together, I just think that they have options now off the bench that are, are making an impact. And I just think that they're going to give us a little bit more Um well, let's see what Kerry Mayo is like this weekend, but um, I just I just have a feeling about Galway this year. I just did. One of the, one of the things when you were talking about Derry there, Oren Lynch's cockiness and performance in general was brilliant. Is that one, one thing that could be a negative in, in terms of Galway? Like, I don't know, did they know between Conor Gleeson and Bernard Power who their, who their number one is? Obviously, Gleeson was in the last day, but can that be a... If you have question marks over any one of your starting 15, that can be an issue. Yeah, well, J- James and Paddy would feel quite strongly about it that you should have a championship goalkeeper and keep it at that. Um, I can kind of understand where Galway are coming from. Bernard Power and Conor Gleeson are very different keepers. You know, uh, it's different. not as it's not as big a contrast as Clark and Henley were, um, but it's it's probably not far off it as well. And um, 
I can kind of understand why a manager would do that. Do you know, like, kickouts are obviously so important, but it can be horses for courses in different games as well. Now, the lads fundamentally disagree with me on that, but I, I can kind of see where Go are coming out on it. It can be a weakness shame for sure. But, like, look at Rafferty. Like, Rafferty makes a blunder for the Brendan Rodgers goal. Mm. But Rafferty is also the man who punches the holes, who kicks two inspirational points, who lays on minimum another three or four scores well, with so his bravery. Kicks them wides. You know, it's a... Obviously it's, he does, Jerry. It's a mixed like, bag, you know? like it, I, it is, it is. But I just think he's bringing enough to justify it. I do. I think, look, I don't know. I'm, I'm definitely, I'm on the fence about it a little bit because the wides suck the spirit of the crowd. You were about to say they, momentum, weren't you? They break the back of the team. Like, they just, all the energy. They're real energy stoppers. And I'm just, Hollywood balls, they're great when they go over. And it's like, yeah, but like, what about the other two? To, okay. to, to Clifford's point... Right, seven out of eight. Yeah, like it's not seven out of eight; it's fifty-fifty. Okay, well, to take the points aside. His passing, his breaking the line, excellent, and like, excellent. Yeah, but but that is so important. When you look at it, like an attack that only Rian O'Neill really stood up. He was shut down apart from moments. Rian O'Neill had moments. Turbot, Mernon, Duffy. Um, Maybe in a semi-final, five out of yeah. six of them go over and they reach an all final and it's totally worthwhile. I, I, you know, and so, and you have to go through this process of finding your range and improving like, your accuracy. And absolutely. they're trying something. Like, I, I think I think what, what McGinney is doing is is really phenomenal. And I see this yeah. abuse that he gets on Twitter. I'm like, you're all mad. You're all just but mad. Like it's, it's, and it's nearly coming as much from inside our man and counties in, that can just eat themselves Claire alive. Claire burned them out, the fools. Yeah, what yeah. were they doing? Listen, Last, last word on that. Decade like, in the wilderness is their sin for their sins. Exactly. But we talk about sliding door moments. Like McGinney's sliding door moments, we mentioned them already. Lynch and Rafferty. Only Lynch's saves in the in the shootout yeah, were unbelievable. Rafferty's kickouts in the last couple of minutes when, when Derry put the squeeze on, he was unlucky. He had the head down for one move. I don't think there was enough moving from him, but the kickouts let him down. Lynch's kickouts, he got away He got away with some. Lynch got put over the line for a 45 that O'Neill fucked nailed excuse my language I got excited uh, nailed that's and how good it was yeah. the game like Goff obviously throws that ball up how like I don't know whether it should have been a free or not like it looks like it should have been a free that he overcarried it that he dropped the ball that he held two Armada defenders off in the line how that ball didn't roll over the line like you would put yeah. your house and your holiday home abroad on Ryan O'Neill kicking that ball over the bar from the 45 that was a joke so like the fine lines the inches like that right. are in these keeper decisions. Last point on this. Colin O'Rourke said that in punditry today that colour, wit and enthusiasm is missing. Tune into the football pod. <laughs> Paddy Anders and James, James Dunne who will bring it for you. That's uh, a plug as you could get. Yeah. I'm very excited about a, a bit of work that um, James Dunne and Darren Conway are doing for us today. I'm excited too. Keep an eye on your socials for that. I haven't heard about it, this, right? It is it is as random and brilliant as it sounds. If if it is as random and brilliant as it sounds, it's going to be one of our all-time great things coming Hustle. to Off The Ball Social Channels near you soon. <laughs> Tommy, you came, yeah. you saw, you smeared us with your power rankings and we are either happy or upset depending on where you're from. Good stuff. Thanks a million. Thanks, lads. Good work today. Tommy. Bye-bye. A reminder, the only place to listen back to Monday Night Rugby, Wednesday Night Rugby, and Brian O'Driscoll in full is on the OTB Rugby podcast feed. You can subscribe now on the OTB app. On tomorrow's show, we're back with Bavin Parsons on Ireland 7's big win. James Tracy's going to join us in studio to stir the pot a little bit more for uh, the game against Ron Nogara at the weekend. Kildare boxer Dennis Hogan is in studio ahead of his Katie Taylor undercard fight. Champions League reaction 
and uh, more GA build up plenty more as well Colin Boyle talking to Joe on last night's show as how we're playing out have a terrific Tuesday OTB AM with Gillette Labs get the ultimate shave or your money back Neon Night Edition available now